Hi guys, we've got the podcast you've all been waiting for, Crossing the Pond. We've got our top guest, Mike, from No Sound Bots Allowed. Um, so in this podcast, we're going to be talking about everything UK-based and everything US-based and globally as well. So, yeah. Um, so to start off with, I'm sure you've all heard about what happened in Russia with the Wagner Group. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so that nobody understands that nobody yeah. understands. And also, I was hoping that Mike would give us a good explanation on what's what's going on there. Um, everyone you listen to seems to have conflicting ideas on what's happening, whether it's funded by NATO, whether it's nothing to do with if it's nothing to do with the Wagner Group and Putin's putting it out there as a psyop. Like, what what is actually going on? Okay. One of the first things we have to take into account when we're trying to figure out what's happening in the Russia-Ukraine war is the West overwhelmingly, uh, almost unilaterally, are looking at everything as a piece of propaganda. This is what happened when you're in a war. We are in a proxy war, so we're using the same tactics, which is propaganda. So everything we're hearing about this is almost completely wrong. As an example, the very first set of Leopard 2 tanks and some of the U.S. Bradley fighting vehicles were all destroyed. 5% of the total that we had sent over initially were destroyed in one battle in about 20 minutes, which is important to understand. The news media was talking about how fantastic that Ukraine was taking on Russia and Russia was losing tanks. And this was a example of a great battle that was going to be coming on the counteroffensive of Ukraine versus Russia. The reality, as we get to see from video, and a lot of it was on Twitter, but initially, the reality is they lost 5% of all of their armed vehicles in one battle in 20 minutes. They're not trained enough because they don't have enough time to be trained, as we mentioned. And they're, they can't fix these fast enough, which we mentioned, because they don't have those capabilities. And they don't have anyone experienced enough with these armed vehicles to have the proper tactics. So this is why they're losing. This is part of the problem. But I say that all because, and again, this doesn't mean I'm in favor of Russia. It's what's the reality? We're getting fed propaganda. The reality is completely different, or at least there are elements of what's very different than what we're being told. That's huge. So when we look at what happened with the private mercenary group, the PMC Wagner Group, which is on four different continents as we speak, all they are is a mobile not military force, basically a battalion, a couple of battalions of military units. They're not an army. It's very important to understand. They're not an army. They are soldiers for hire. There's a bunch of them, roughly about 25,000, as I recall. And so it's sizable, but it's not an army. What I think actually happened is there are a lot of problems between Wagner Group and Russia in terms of supplies. Russia doesn't care because they're not their troops. They don't have to care. Um, Wagner Group 
because they're not an army, because they're not self-sufficient, they are reliant on getting their logistics, their supplies from someone else, usually their employer. They have a lot of their own, but that's limited and they can't move it everywhere they need to and around the world. They need their employers to provide that to them. Fair enough. So this brings up tensions. It brings up tensions. They're fighting. They're winning. They're considered heroes in many parts of Russia and Ukraine. This is Wagner Group we're talking about. So what we see is what we see in Africa. A general does very well. He comes, becomes beloved by the people. He's very successful in what he is doing. He has limited logistics. He doesn't want to give up the fight. He decides to take over an area. He becomes a warlord. Because he is loved by the people, because he has taken over a region, he now gets logistics. He has supplies. He has resources. He has personnel. He's stuck in place. You never get rid of them. You now have another warlord in Africa. We see that in Sudan, even as we're speaking right now, in a war that is going on there. So, yet another war that's going on in Sudan. Same thing applies in when we look at the Wagner Group. They've been cut off on supplies. They've been treated badly by their employer, which happens to be Russia. They're not a bunch of nice guys, but they are well-loved in the region they are in. Why not take control? No one's paying attention around the world. Just like no one cares about the other three continents they're on, no one is paying attention to them. They're, they're all hate Russia, support Ukraine. The details don't matter. Why not break off, take over a city, get logistics, get a home base, get somewhere that's our safe zone that we can get the logistics we need, get the support we need, and have peace. It's our spot. It's our permanent base. Why not? Because it happens around the world, and no one pays attention. And as long as no one pays attention, they win. It all goes under the water. Well, Russia noticed, because you can't do that. They will notice they have units in the GRU just to notice that kind of thing. They've been doing that since the old Soviet days. So they obviously said, you can't do this. We're going to have a counteroffensive. Now, this wasn't the entire Wagner group that decided to do this. This was a faction. But that's all it takes. Because once they, again, once they take it over, they're embedded forever. The head of Wagner Group, who has to look strong and has to ma maintain cohesion, otherwise he, he loses everyone, supports his men, which is not unusual. Support your men publicly, punish them privately. This is how you maintain unit cohesion, and everyone understands because you're the face, and my men are always right. They did the right thing. Go back after everyone turns their backs and then go buck while punishing people because you don't want to be in that situation again. Some of those men who are a part of that break-off decided to try and rush towards Russia, to Moscow, as a scare tactic. We can strike you. We can strike the heart of Russia. Leave us alone. Let us take over this area. Russia responds by, are you kidding me? We're the people who negotiate by killing the hostages as well as the terrorists. No way that's going to work with us. And they're never going to get close enough to Putin to ever assassinate him or anyone of importance. 
never going to happen. They realized that they backed down because it was a scare tactic. Then they get dispersed. You either join them. If you're loyal to Russia, you join Russia. If you're loyal to Wagner Group, you stay with them, but you go to Belarus or you go home and retire. Those are your three options. This is on its face a way for everyone to save face. Russia looks strong and like they are still in control. Wagner Group continues to maintain its unit cohesion and its activities around the world, and they are still very effective at what they do. And the radicals get to go home, get to save their lives, theoretically. Trust me, if you're picking go home, retire, because you were part of the radicals, you're dead. They're going to be in a conflict and die long before they ever get home. So it's a way to clean house, make everyone look good, and the world is confused. We heard, now, that's the summary of it. And a little bit of his conjecture for me, but most of it is based on the facts that we saw. All of that has nothing to do with what you heard from the West. What we heard in all the news media was civil war in Russia. Putin has lost his power. He is weak. The war is over because everything is falling apart and Russia is going to fracture. None of that. None of that's true. They, by the time they printed those stories, the event was over. <laughs> Did you notice that? As soon as they came out, Russia's in the Civil War. It's all falling apart. Everyone's going for their own. The war, uh, the event's over. What? So much for that Civil War and that coup. Because it was never true. It had nothing to do with truth. It was about propaganda. So, and the funny, and the thing is, it takes a minute or two to explain all that, which the media doesn't want to do. They want a minute and a half, and they want to promote the war. Minute and a half, got to promote the war. It's a civil war. Putin's lost it. But let's remember, we were talking about this in February. We've seen this before. Uh, we saw this a year ago. But Ukraine is a one-month war. Putin has brain cancer, and he's about to die, and nobody in uh, the Kremlin trust Putin. So everyone's looking to start their own thing. Do you remember all of these stories? We've heard all of them. They were internationally promoted by credible news agencies around the world. None of it's true. We're in the middle of this is a war. We are being fed propaganda. Does that help put it into perspective? Yeah. So with the West, they just keep putting out different stories to make Putin look weak in many different situations, but obviously with it being false, none of them ever have legs, so they die out. But the, the weird thing is everyone forgets about them. Of course. Everyone forgot Putin's got brain cancer. He's supposed to be dead in six months. That was 18, two, two years ago, 18 months ago, something like that. He's still around. <laughs> Obviously, not true. You know, uh, he's been poisoned. He's still alive. Um, there's a civil war going on. No, there's no evidence of that. This is meant to generate a certain feeling, a certain confidence. We saw this in every war that's happened. It's not new. You know, wartime propaganda is a tr steady, traditional kind of event. 
We've seen it in every conflict, whether it be Iraq war, whether it be World War II, even Vietnam, we've always seen this. It's just that today, because we have social media, instantaneous connections, and we don't need, we have alternative news media sources, we now get to see it more clearly than ever before that, you know, there's a really huge healthy dose of propaganda here. We're not being told the true story. It's something else. So how long do you think, because well, the, the way it's set up from the way I see it is the West, the US, the UK even as well, are pumping money into Ukraine to fight the battle against um, Russia to sort of deplete them of their of their weapons, their arsenal, their, their ammunition. That's one of the ideas. And I just add to that as well, Cam. BlackRock, I think BlackRock and another investment house have won the contract to rebuild Ukraine. Vanguard. Is it Vanguard? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not going to work. <laughs> well, we're already spending, the United States alone is spending about seven, they're, they're paying for about 73% of the entire GDP. 2019 GDP of the Ukraine. That's about $120 billion a year. That's huge. That's what the United States is paying it alone. Second place would be the United Kingdom. And I believe you guys are putting in about 30 to $50 billion a year. And these are numbers that are never going to end. At least while the war is going on. Let's also remember, this is a 20-year war, and we are in year 22, uh, excuse me, uh, 12. We are in the middle of a war that started in 2013 with the uh, disillusion and the appeasement of the Crimea being given over to the Russians, which has given them every excuse to continue this conflict. They've been fighting since 2013. And Obama was very critical in that appeasement in giving over the Crimea to settle down Russia. And Russia's been looking for the opportunity to go back in, build up its forces, build up the sentiment of the people, build their infrastructure so that they could lead. And when given the weakness of the United States under the right president, they step in. So this is a 20-year war, kind of like Iraq, kind of like Vietnam, kind of like uh, Afghanistan, both for the Russians and for the Americans, Afghanistan, they're in the middle of a 20-year war, generational war, and we are in the middle of it. This is going to keep going for another nine, ten years. And what happens What happens in nine, ten years? Do, well, obviously, there's one extreme, but best-case scenario, the West say enough's enough and pull out the funding, the war. <laughs> Well, best case for who? Well, best case for the world, right? Because if it just carries on the way it's going, it's going to be... The world doesn't care. Mm. The world doesn't care. The Ukraine's not important to anything. The, well, that's not true. The Ukraine is important to fertilizer. The Ukraine is important to wheat, uranium. It's strategic in its placement, allowing access to the Black Sea, the Mediterranean. So it, it's... And it gives a strategic position to be able to attack Poland and Germany. Okay. So what's the best thing in the world? The fighting stops. No one cares who wins. They want the fighting to stop. After you get past that point, because if we have the fighting stop, 
than the 30% food crisis that we are in at this moment that no one talks about, we were talking about in February, still going on. It's just that people have gotten used to the fact that there's 30% less food in the world in first world nations. In second and third world nations, people are starving to death and they're still rioting and panicking because there's not enough food. But in the first world, we're just used to it. And we'll, we've adjusted to it for the most part. And we're used to the fact that about 10 to 15% of the shelves are empty because there's no food. It's part of the reason why food inflation in the UK is 11%. In the United States, it's uh, about 12%. We've gotten used to it. So we want that to end. Farmers are able to farm. Fertilizer gets moved around the world. There'll be more food. Prices will go down to help the inflation. So we want that to end. Preferably, now comes the politics. What we want it to be, the West wants it to be, a uh, Ukraine that is independent. Russia wants them to be part of the Russian Federation, obviously, to build up its sources and to allow it to then pivot to go into Estonia, Latvia, Latvia, uh, to get the northern region and have access to the North Sea through that means, giving them two different ports that they can easily access. It gives them leverage against Poland, and Germany, not just because of the pipelines for gas, but it gives them leverage in terms of fear. And that's important politically. And that will help their economy even more on the longer term. Um, and it shows the strength of the Russians and kind of rebuilding the old Soviet Union. So that's what the Russians want. The West wants a independent they don't want them part of nato because that brings us into continuing conflict this is not going to end if russia doesn't own ukraine this fight doesn't end it pauses people will rebuild redo their logistics and go back in again it's not going to end that okay, so i heard about a deal that was potentially on the table where Ukraine gave Russia the regions they've already taken, like the Donbass region, they've already taken Crimea, and the rest of Ukraine becomes part of NATO. And there probably allows a deal on the table to stop the war. But what you're saying is that it will stop the war temporarily, but once Russia's strengthened, they'll come back in and cause a war with NATO. This is the, I believe this is the deal being offered by China, which is in the best interest of Russia, their ally. Um, and it's kind of the appeasement model. You already have it. Keep it. And it's not really appeasement because they fought over it. Keep what you won. Stop there. Which gives the, Russia a lot of leverage. And at the very least, if there is to be a peace deal, that's the very minimum. That they're going to keep the western and southern portions of the Ukraine, which happen to be where the food, the fertilizer, and the uranium is. And gives them access to the Black Sea, which is why they focused on the West and the South. It's exactly what they want. Everything else is bonus for them. Given time, they'll get the rest of it too. Uh, and that's probably what you will see at some point is exactly that deal. Which gives Russia basically 80% of everything it wants. And it gives... but. 
for them to be in NATO is an ongoing problem. They, they'll never be able to pay what they've, all the money we've given them, we'll never get it back. They don't have the resources, the personnel, the experience, and they're corrupt as hell. We're not gaining anything by adding them into NATO except a headache, which is why there's a backlash against letting them in. And it starts a trend that will become aggressive. More of the pre-Baltics will try and get into NATO, which means we have a border directly with Russia, and Russia's interests conflict with that. It's a long-term problem. These are the honest answers about it. When you take out, pick a side, and we're just looking at it for what is it, these are the answers that we're left with. And the United States wants, honestly, we want the fight. We want this problem. That's why we're backing Ukraine so hard, why we're, we reversed on sending them tanks, because we knew this was going to happen with the tanks. We're sending them F-16s, or we're pretending, we're, planning to send them F-16s and fighter jets. Why? Because we want this war. It's good economically, it's good as a distraction, and we don't like Russia. Historically and culturally, ideologically, we don't agree with them for the most part, especially Putin. And so we're using this, and it's very politically advantageous. America doesn't tend to switch presidents in the middle of a war. This is the best way to have a war without actually being in a war. The problem is, with the tanks and the planes all being shot down because they don't have the experience, we have to send in advisors. I've said this twice on the program before with you guys. We're sending in advisors to fix the tanks, to fix the planes, to train them on the ground, to give them the experience and the tactics that they desperately need because just because you have a big gun doesn't mean you know how to aim it. And so they're going to, uh, so we're sending in the troops. That's 80% of NATO is U.S. forces, which means U.S. troops are going in. Again, this is the creep towards war. And we just heard Lindsey Graham and Senator Blumenthal, Richard Blumenthal of the United States, have just said, now this is in reference to tactical nukes, that if a tactical nuke is used, the United States will consider that an act of war internationally and will go to war against Russia. Think about the ramifications of that. Because no one's stopping to pause. Because it sounds great. Oh, they used a tactical nuke. Yes, we need to go to war. Why? Why are we going to war? Because they used a tactical nuke, even one, to make a point. They're doing what we did in Japan with Nagasaki and Hiroshima. We dropped two nukes on people actively in a war to end the war. And so Russia will say, well, we're doing what you did. This is exactly what you did in America. But what, you're the only one who can bully the world with nuclear weapons? So Russia will say that's their justification, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The difference between what happened in Japan and what may happen in Ukraine, couple things. One, Japan is an island nation. There was no discernible immediate fallout on neighboring countries. It hit the ocean. Not to say it didn't affect China or Korea or anyone in Southeast Asia, but we didn't see any immediate effect. No direct link. You're talking about the Ukraine. 
that means Moldova, that means Poland, that means Belarus, uh, potentially the pre-Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Uh, Lithuania. Um, it could go into Southern Europe. It could go to uh, Europe proper, like Germany. Even the fallout could go into Russia itself. Yeah, just because of the shifting winds. I don't know where it could go. But there's no determination in the world, what do you do about nuclear fallout? Is that an act of war? Is that a provocation for any kind of war, even conventional war? We've never considered that. It's never been a conversation in the world. Um, is it criminal to use nuclear weapons? What If not, okay, what are the reasons that we can justify using nuclear weapons? How many nuclear weapons? What magnitude of these nuclear weapons? Notice how it's quickly escalating and the problem becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Who's going to join in this war? If, if Senator Lindsey Graham, who happens to be a Republican, a moderate Republican, establishment Republican, um, and Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's a moderate to left-leaning a uh, Democrat who's been supported by the socialists, um, the socialist, socialist communists of the United States. He's won, given awards by them and spoken at their events. He believes in authoritarianism and trying to have government control of censorship over the internet. He's not one of my favorites. I'm not a fan. Uh, these two men are presenting this idea. Okay, where does it go? What are the ramifications of this? The consequences are huge, which is why no one in the media wants to talk about this. This is dead on arrival because you cannot intelligently talk about this in 30 seconds. It's very scary. Kind so, of surprised you, huh? Didn't think about that. Yeah. Just going back, you said you said a lot then. Um, but yeah. going back before you were talking about nukes, you mentioned during the time of war, um, the US doesn't tend to change president. But it's looking likely Biden's not going to be president as of next year, right? We can only pray. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if Donald Trump gets into power, yeah, he said it would stop the Ukraine war within twenty four hours. Yes. Do you think he could do that? No. It's bravado, though. Um, but that's not new. I mean, it was Reagan who said, you know, he'd stop Iran, the um, Iran hostage crisis back in 1980, uh, without mentioning that he was doing backdoor deals with the Iranians at the time to get that done, and was cutting off the backdoor deals of the Carter presidency at the time to get the deal done. They were all trying to make a deal with Iran to get the hostages back home, 400 Americans. Um, if you're too young, look it up. It's the uh, Iran conflict. And this is 1980. And both the Carter administration, Democrats, and Ronald Reagan, before he became president, Republicans, were making deals with Iran to get our hostages back. And basically, Reagan made a better deal. Uh, which is why the day he gets in, like two weeks after he got into elected office, suddenly the hostages came back home. Miraculously, just, whew, it's all done. 
Yeah, because the deal was already made. And it made him look good. <clears throat> it made Carter look bad, and that's why he won the election. So Trump will not overnight change this. But he will give incentive. It's not just that he's a good deal maker, and he is. He had four deals for Middle East peace. During his three years of presidency, he was able to get four Middle East deals, increasing the net uh, peace in the Middle East, and was nominated for two Nobel Prizes because of it, something that doesn't get a whole lot of press. He's a great deal maker. Yeah, he's, he's written a book about it. So. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, politically, politically, yeah. he's, he's transferred that from business to politics. Uh, do I think he would quickly get it? Yes. Not just because of the ability to give the sides what they want, but he backs it with a big stick. He says, and, or they would say, he's a cowboy. He's crazy. They're not sure what he's going to do if they say no. They don't know what he's going to do if he feels threatened. So you have both the deal that he can make and the fear of a strong president at the same time. They only did this because they have a weak president who's going to back down and run away and doesn't want to be involved. Trump isn't that guy. You don't have that same leeway, that same freedom, so you have to react differently. Does he get a deal? Yes. How quickly? Mm, let's call it a month. Um, That's still Russia pretty quick. A lot. Hmm? That's still pretty quick, a month. Very quick. Mm. Um, will there still be fighting going on in the background? Absolutely. will be happening for another 10 years. No matter who wins, no matter how they want to call it, there's still going to be fighting. There's going to be freedom fighters, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies. It's all going to be happening for you know a decade. But no one's going to pay attention to that, just like no one pays attention to the women in Afghanistan right now. You know, they're getting beaten down every day. They've been poisoned recently. Um, they can't go to school, they can't read. Where are all those wonderful progressive activists? We support women, we support women in. Afghanistan, we need to make sure that the Taliban are going to respect women. Uh, where are those people? Where's their headlines? Afghanistan is a forbidden word. We don't even talk about that because of how badly Biden botched it. We won't talk about the Americans, 5,000 there, 10,000 Ukraine, 15,000 now in the Sudan, 30,000 Americans abandoned by Biden. We don't talk about any of those countries anymore if we can possibly help it. So it's going to be the same scenario. We're not going to talk about Ukraine. It's going to go back into the mist of the public in knowledge. They're going to forget it, just like they forget everyone else that's not actively going on. And things will happen there. It will still be bad. It'll be a festering boil for the future. That's how I see that. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like with anything in the news cycle, it just, when it's in the public's face for, when it's in the face, they know what's going on, but when it's not, everyone just forgets about it. Yeah, it is so crazy how powerful it can just control the narrative of every mass population. Um, that submarine, for example, 
just yeah. absolutely took over everything. It was all over Instagram, all over Twitter, all over BBC, all over Sky News. But it's this week now it's like, what's up? This week it's not even in the news anymore. It's just gone, like disappeared. Of course, it's it's a three, it's part of the three day news cycle. Unless it's really important news, it's a three day news cycle. And when certain things like the Titanic, and yeah, it's sad. Five people died. It's sad. Is that the saddest thing that happened in the world? More people died over the weekend in Chicago and Detroit up each than what happened in the submarine. It's it's important because it's a movie. It's Hollywood. It's James Cameron. And so it has a 60 story. It's the Titanic, which has almost mythic uh, legacy in our memories. Uh, and, you know, it's a regrettable. It could have been prevented or they could have possibly been saved, depending on the stories that you believe about what the U.S. Navy knew and when they knew it. Um, but it was a distraction. The news came out as a distraction from everything else that was happening in the news. Yeah, because there was some news that came out. Um, I don't know properly what it was around Joe Biden. Um, Hunter. Hunter and Joe. Confirmed that Joe Biden has been receiving at least $5 million through international deals that were not reported before. Confirmed that Joe Biden is the big guy, as identified in letters, business letters on Hunter Biden's laptop three years ago that we've already confirmed multiple times that he is, in fact, that big guy who has been rerouting the money through various organizations and uh, companies so it cleans the money so that no one would notice that he's getting the money, which means this is an intentional deception. This is a fraud that's being used against the American people. Um, that Hunter Biden took a plea deal, a sweetheart plea deal, as governed by Merrick Garland, the AG, who's mad against Republicans for not being part of the Supreme Court, and that he is giving a sweetheart deal using his power, which has interfered with the FBI doing its job, dropped 397 charges that were sitting in the sidelines for a year on Hunter Biden and let three go through, and all of them were pleaded out. Yes, he pleaded to guilt and got probation on everything. He got probation for lying on federal forms. He got probation for illegally having a firearm. Remember, these are Democrats who are absolutely adamant that you can't have a firearm. He had an illegal firearm. They don't care. He disposed of that, that firearm, endangering children. They don't care. He gets to get plea deals and probation on all of that. Whereas anyone else in the universe does any of those things, they're going to jail for two to five, five to ten. Yeah, there's a lot of people in jail right now for them exact same charges. For less than those charges. But and because everyone the backlash was immediate and obvious, and the bias and the corruption is so obvious, distraction. Oh, did you know there's the submarine blew up? James Cameron's involved. You've heard James Cameron movies. Titanic, talk about that. Just long enough to get past it. Mm. Yeah, it was the um, it was a well put together distraction because it pulled on everyone's heartstrings. Yeah, um, they love to do that. They love this, to use heartstrings. 
Yeah. There's um, a conspiracy that's out at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you want to debunk it or see what value it's got in it. That Barack Obama is still running the US of A. Uh, because we know, we it's so clear that Joe Biden cannot run a country. <laughs> I don't even know what day of the week it is. That's but, so clear, but who, what do you reckon is actually going on behind the scenes there? Well, it's the reason why this isn't a new conspiracy. People have had this conspiracy from the moment that they listened to Joe Biden try and give a speech and talk in 2019. Okay. Um, the man who's known for plagiarizing speeches and making up words as he goes, do you really believe he has the strength? The He, he wasn't a dumb man in his youth. No, I've, I've seen a few videos of him. He was quite sharp, actually. Yeah, he was quite sharp. Still was very blatant in his bias, very blatant in his corruption, um, his willingness to do whatever it took to win the deal. Um, accused Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas of being a racist, of being a sexual predator, you know, um, Famously, this is where now Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas said, this is a modern day lynching being led by who? Joe Biden, using race to beat up on a candidate in a way that never had been seen before, in sexism, in a way that had never been seen before in uh, Supreme Court politics. So when you see a man who used to be like that and now has to be shown a cue card so he knows where to sit and where, who he has to talk to, where we have seen repeatedly, he has complete lists, charts of where every single reporter is sitting in a room, what their names and their organizations are, and what order he's going to speak to each of them in, and what question they're asking. You're telling me he has, everything has to be set up to that great a detail? Yeah, that doesn't sound like someone who's independently running the nation and has a plan. It sounds like a puppet. Mm. Well, it is a puppet. Yeah. And that's why we're hearing that everyone's saying, well, it's Obama. But it's not. Now, sorry, dropped my cigarette. Don't want to start fire. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's Obama, although... And everyone goes, but it's Obama 2.0. All the policies of the Obama administration, like the Iran nuclear deal. Go back, folks. Look at me talking about this in February of this year. I told you the Iran nuclear deal was on. I told you that it was happening. We had December. It's a dead deal. Joe Biden, December 22nd of 2022. It's a dead deal. We won't do a deal with Iran while they're killing women. Uh, because of their hair or because they're, be they're poisoning young schoolgirls, because they're learning to read and write. We won't do business. We respect women. The deal is on. We've got every credible international news agency is talking about how that this deal can be completed and how important it is that we do the Iran nuclear deal. The conversations are still happening. I was right. I told you that. It was obvious and everyone knew it. They lied to your face again. Anyway. How did I get to Iran? All right. Um, yeah, it's not it's not likely to be Obama that's yeah. running. Yeah, even though it's 
Obama's policies in 2.0, like the Iran nuclear deal, extending these things, moving them forward, transforming America in the way that Obama did, that's just tangential. That's because Obama is a progressive, and these are progressive policies. And so they're just pushing those progressive policies forward so they become entrenched. And once something is entrenched in the United States, it never goes away. You create a new department, you create a new law, it never ends. You give a new entitlement, it never ends. No matter how temporary you say it is, it doesn't go away. So he's just following that plan. It's a progressive ideology. Now, someone is pulling his strings, I think. Someone's writing those speeches. He's not. Somebody's telling him what topics to talk on and what questions to ask. Someone's approving this. We've seen half a dozen times easily where the White House has come out and retracted and corrected the live comments of Joe Biden. I'm, how can the White House tell you that the president didn't say what he just said, that the president has a different meaning for what he just explained? You can't do that. They work for him, theoretically, and yet they're correcting him live, real time. That means someone else is in charge. Who it is, I don't know. Do I think it's Obama? No, because I don't think Obama was strong enough to run things himself either. I think yeah, he, was a... he could have been a puppet himself anyway. Yeah, um, I was listening to a podcast today, um, but I don't know if, if you've heard of Patrick Bet David. Patrick David? Bet David. Not offhand. So he's the podcast today with um, Alex Jones. I'm sure you've heard of Alex Jones. Mm, okay. People have. <laughs> um, and what their theory was that's coming, um, that came in light today was that they're allowing, they're going to allow now journalists to start roasting Joe Biden to, to, to basically prove that he's not fit for, to be a president of such a powerful co country as he isn't. And they were questioning whether this, them allowing journalists to now grill him on this means it's going to make him look weak and then give them a reason to replace him with someone else. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that ties into the fact that it's kind of looking likely that Trump might be able to get it in 2024, but okay. there's no way that Trump and Biden can go head to head together because Trump will absolutely destroy him. Mm, Trump destroyed him the last time, but here's the thing. Is there anyone in the UK or the EU that thinks that Joe Biden is strong? No one I've ever spoken to. I, I mean, we we don't need the leashes to be unloosed for the news media to go after Joe Biden. We don't need that. It's already become apparent. That's why 58% of Democrats don't want him to run in 2024. Democrats don't want him to run. Majority. He's always looked weak. There's no one in the world who looks at Joe Biden in the Biden-Harris administration and says, that's a strong leader. Nobody, even his deepest adherents who are doing it purely because of politics, because straight down the line politics, do not refer to Joe Biden as strong. It, it, that's just a propaganda piece to put those words, put the word strong anywhere near Joe Biden. So... This is just making it sound more like support for whoever's next. That they're trying to build up a credible 
platform for the next person to take over. Joe Biden's weak, but we have a replacement. Here's all the things he's weak on, but notice there's someone better in the wings who can take over, and it's not Donald Trump because Donald Trump's the devil. So it has to be someone else. And we have someone else, everyone else except Biden and Trump. Those two are out. It has to be someone else. We have someone for you. It's a setup. So, so you think that's setting it up for a new um, <clears throat> Democrat to come in and replace Biden for the 2024 election? Yeah. It's kind of like what happened with Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust. Liz Trust was weak as hell and everybody knew it. Liz Trust had no real plan. I don't think Liz even thought that she was going to win, but she did. She thought she was going to lose to Kemi, my favorite, Kemi. <laughs> um, but she thought she was going to lose to Kemi, who happened to be a friend of hers. And, but she suddenly got the nod instead of Kemi, partially because I think Kemi was too independent, too vocal, too outspoken for the moderates in your country. And so they put Liz forward. So it was between Liz and Rishi. Rishi is a rich kid. He's, in, he's a spoiled, entitled, rich kid for the most part. He's weak. You can't put him in because he would never have been respected day one. But if you put in Liz Trust first, she completely screws up because she's not prepared, because it's bigger than what she can handle. She doesn't have the gravitas, the impressiveness, the capabilities. But she fit the, I'm a woman, diversity, equity. She fit the scenario. So you can put her in credibly under that uh, uh, alternative means of, uh, of leadership, which has nothing to do with actual leadership. She can fail dramatically. You now are justified to remove her and put Rishi in, the man that you wanted in the first place, but who's too milquetoast to actually win on his own. Now, am I right about that? Maybe not. Is that a credible way of looking at it based on the information we have now in hindsight? And somewhat at the time, I was saying the same thing. Yeah, because it makes sense. Because that's politically advantageous. It makes, it works with the media, it works with what we see. Um, so yeah, I see some of that same kind of logic and thinking happening here in the US in terms of Democrats that we saw in the UK with conservatives. Or do you guys think I'm wrong on that? No, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Well, yeah, maybe uh, you guys have seen what's happened in UK politics and thought, oh, we could do a bit of the, we could have a bit of that over here. There's so much in-party fighting with the conservatives at the moment. There always is. There's infighting against the Labour Party, just like there's infighting amongst Democrats. The progressives are not, if you ask a progressive, are they a Democrat? They'll say no, but they vote down the Democrat line. They're part of the Democratic Party. They're only 7% of Democratic Party, 2% of the nation, but they have a huge voice. Same thing with the Labour Party for you guys. So it's, it's not new. It's how does the news media want to portray that? How do they want to convey that? Well, it depends on what's the advantage they get out of it. Yeah. Um, uh, as you are probably aware, Boris Johnson stepped down not too long ago. Was it about two weeks ago, maybe? Boris was already out. Yeah. Oh, uh, from Parliament. 
Yeah, but he was already out. Once well, he stepped down as prime minister, his star ended. He's like Chris Christie here in the United States. Chris Christie, if you don't know, was, was the governor of New Jersey, outspoken Republican, who ran for presidency and failed miserably, and now has reannounced that he's going to be running in 2024 and is failing miserably. He's, at, he's got about 2.5% support in, across the nation. And a brand new newcomer, Vivek Ramaswamy, somebody that nobody knows, young kid, new in politics, has 2.1% support. And he's far more radical and far more energetic than Chris Christie ever was on a good day. It's Chris Christie is just trying to, he lost his star, he lost his luster, and he's now trying to regain his political positioning. Boris Johnson, the moment he stopped being prime minister, lost his luster nobody wants to really deal with him he's tainted goods and so he's out okay did anyone care he, he's already been out yeah there's a few few rumors i don't know how much we can believe them or not um around that he's got dirt on rishi sunak um whether or not he does that, i think he would have probably used that dirt by now considering he left no. two weeks ago no, it wouldn't. It, it would. It would be wasted. The well, that's the other standard. side of the coin: is that he might be joining arms with Nigel Farage. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny for for Americans who are watching this right now. These are all names you probably know nothing about. <laughs> um, this is deep UK politics. It's the equivalent of talking about. Uh, essentially, it's like. What can I say? Uh, uh, it's Biden stepping down because Kamala has deep dirt on Obama and on Biden. Mm. It, it's kind of that kind yeah. of equivalent. Mm. Um, Boris Johnson couldn't use any. I'm sure Rishi Sunak, Sunak is not a uh, saint by any means. He's not the wonderkin that he likes to put himself out as no politicians everyone in politics has an ego you wouldn't be in politics if you didn't have one you absolutely need it to survive you need a super thick skin you need to think some level of megalomania allows you to succeed in politics that's a fact i don't care where you are in the world it's always true and because they have these egos because they have this level of megalomania that is involved in them in their desire to be absolutely Machiavellian in some cases, and the more Machiavellian, the more successful, uh, that means that they've done things that at some point someone's going to object to. It's just a matter of how well known is it. Everyone has that weakness. Everyone in politics has that skeleton in the closet. Do I believe there's a skeleton in Rishi's? I think there's several. Absolutely. Would Boris Johnson use it in the middle of a scandal about the um, about the parties that were happening now while the rest of the country was being in lockdown after we found out from WhatsApp that in the United Kingdom, like in the United States, the scientists and the doctors were saying, no, we don't need to lock down everything. We don't need to lock down schools. Kids don't need to have the injections because science. Well, if he used the powder then, 
it would have been wasted. They just would have found someone else. Liz Truss was going to get in anyway. They'd have just found another number two. Or it would have been used up and everyone would have said, yeah, but we hate you, Boris. Anyway, you're still not going to stay prime minister. It would have been used up and we still would have got Liz, who would have then led to Rishi anyway. So why use that powder? No, no, now is when he can use it. Why? Because people who used to be in high levels of power are some of the most dangerous people in the world. They know all the dirt. They know how things function. They know all the other leaders around the world. And nobody's paying attention to them politically anymore. Politically, they're not in the spotlight anymore. Everyone's paying attention to the other guy. So they get to have all the conversations, make all the deals and plans and put things in motion. They can have their summits and vacations, and they just happen to be on vacation in a place that someone else just happened to be on vacation. But no one's paying attention because you're not in charge of anything anymore, except they can talk to everyone who is in charge. This is the scary part of it. So Boris Johnson stepping down means he's out of the spotlight, which means Rishi's terrified. <laughs> because now Boris has no leash. He can do whatever he wants talking to anyone in the world that he has their phone numbers on his speed dial, including Rishi. And he can still have dinner with Rishi. He can still go out and talk to all these people at any time that he wants to. And he has dangling over his head. And I know this. Gotta do this. Now, does that mean he gets to control everything? No. But it's enough to say, uh, yeah, on this one deal, yeah, I want this. Yeah, he's got leverage. That's all it takes. Does anyone disagree? And I'd love to see this in the comments. Does anyone disagree with what I just described? You will when you put it so simply, politics is such a dirty game. Of course it is. It, the two best people, if you want to understand politics in the modern 21st century, there's only two people you need to read. Screw, screw everything else. There's only two people you need to read. Sun Tzu, Machiavelli. Stop. Full stop. Everyone else is a flavor of an idea about this thing, that thing, whatever about some aspect of politics, of this factional warfare, fighting within the various factions, the Pollyanna views of socialism and communism. But what actually happens day to day is a combination of art of war and the prince. That's what happens every day. So when you think of it that way, it becomes very simple. What is the most advantageous thing that you can do we're using the access to the public and pulling their heartstrings and emotions to temporarily blind them while not actually saying anything to them so that they will obey while maintaining um, your balance, your, your relative level versus your opponents that are doing the same exact damn thing and then multiply that on a national level. It's like uh, we have a guy, uh, a Jeff Jackson, who is the North Carolina 14th District Congressional Representative. So he's a member of Congress out of North Carolina. And he came out on TikTok. TikTok is known to be using its uh, software to steal private data 
from people around the world, especially in the United States, so badly that even Democrats put a ban for federal employees, which would include members of Congress, from using TikTok on government devices. <laughs> so this member of government used TikTok, so possibly violating his own party and the regulations in the United States, goes on to TikTok to say that AI is going to be the next devil. It's dangerous. It's going to hurt you. How? He doesn't say. It's being used right now to destroy the world. How? Well, because somebody somewhere might be using AI to create bioweapons. How? Who? When? Where? Doesn't answer any of that. So you should be afraid. AI is dangerous. And because we don't know how AI will be dangerous in the future, today, his solution is he's going to protect you by putting the government in, they're going to get government involved and have the government censor AI and its applications, that they don't know what those applications are, and they don't know what they're going to be or how it's going to be used. He's going to protect you from an unknown, for your good, to protect you because he's a great guy, re-elect him. He's an evil bastard using people and using their emotions and fear-mongering on stuff that's literally, he's going, there's a monster under your bed in the dark of night. I'm going to protect you, I'm government. And only government can protect you from the unknown in the future. Give well, me more of the The monster under the bed, he's saying there could possibly be a time where a monster comes under your bed. So I'm going to put all the protections in now. Yeah, which is censorship, authoritarianism. It's evil. And people are like, Mike, you just don't understand. Okay, explain it. But the, they're using it for bioweapons. Wait a minute, you mean computers? They've been using computers and supercomputers to make bioweapons for decades. That's not new. Oh, but they might use deep fake programs. They'll make deep fake videos for uh, um, for the election cycle. They've been doing that for decades. That's not new. We have an entire industry that is there, fact checkers, who are supposedly there to make sure people get the right information to tell you whether it's true or not. This isn't new. AI isn't doing something, according to what he's trying to tell us, is you've got to be terrified. These are all things that already exist, that we already have safeguards on, that we're already dealing with. It's not new, but he wants new power for the government over your life. Why? Because he wants power. Because this is a setup. You're not supposed to think about it. I mean, when you think about it, yeah, deep fakes aren't new. They've been doing it for over a decade. Fake videos, fake articles, fake quotes, that's been going on for centuries. That's not new. Uh, you know, technology, researching how to make bioweapons and how to uh, make nuclear weapons and other weapons of war. That's been going on for millennia. Hell, the, back in the middle, middle Ages, they used to use rats that had the Black Plague and they would throw them into cities. That was a bioweapon. Been doing this for millennia. This is not new stuff, but it's a new fear promoted by social media. Give up your rights, give up your freedoms. And you guys should be terrified because if he gets away with this here, AI is international. That means he's pushing this in the UK. This is coming to the UK directly. 
U.S. is blocking AI. You got to block AI too. You got to take safeguards for your people for AI. And sadly, you guys don't have as much protection in terms of freedom of speech as the United States. No one does, which means you're going to be swamped and this is going to take over in a night. It's terrifying. But no one wants to talk about that. You know, it's like, I'm just some radical crazy. Because, you know, Mike, you're thinking about the future and you're listening to what he's saying. How could, how dare you? One thing I love that you do, Mike, is you take away whatever emotion. So what this chap was saying in a TikTok video, it was all, he, he was saying what you said, but surrounding it with emotion and making the, pers- the people watching it feel something. Whereas you, you've taken that emotion away. I actually looked at it for what, the bare, for what it actually is, the bare bones of it. Oh, yeah, it's a really, and you can see how well his team, by the way, kudos to Jeff Jackson's team. They set up that video perfectly. They put it in his house, in a kitchen, so you could see some of the stuff in the kitchen. So he looks like an everyday, average person, homeowner. He's got a nice house. It looks like a nice house anyway, from the angle they used. And he's in his kitchen, just like you might be. He's wearing a sweater, a sweater shirt. Uh, it's purple, so you know he's an ally to the LGBTQ, but it's not blaringly obvious because he's just wearing that color. Uh, he's clean shaven. They're doing a three-quarter shot, kind of like this one here. So it's showing him, so you get to be able to focus on his face, but not too close, so it's not a close-up. Um, so he's projecting power, but subtly doing so. They've got the camera angle just slightly above him. So you're looking down on him. So he's submissive. He's in a submissive position. This is a trick of cameras so that he looks like he's subservient. This is how he is serving you. And they have the wording very carefully put together so that it's fearful, but not detailed. There's no explanation, but it goes so quickly that you're not thinking about it. And no one's going to play it over and actually pay attention to the words he says, because it's only about a minute and a half. So you're not going to be thinking about it. And people go on to the next video. So they won't ever even see this. And AI is the big bad. So you're already on the good side. This thing was tailored perfectly. They are such a good team that put this video together. They thought about it all the way through. They are brilliant. Jeff Jackson is a authoritarian dictator in sheep's clothing. And I hope the people of North Carolina kick him out. And this is what's coming to the UK. It's already in Canada. Yeah, I feel like we're... um with some things we're second in line from what happens in America and other things, it seems like we're second in line of what happens well, in we, Canada. And we export a lot of our stupid ideas, a lot of our progressive ideas to the rest of the world. It's our number one export right now. Well, people look at the US, definitely other countries, and as the uh, sort of role model for the rest of the world due to previous success that you've, as a country, have had. I think we need to follow in them same footsteps to achieve that sort of success or at least be close to that level of success yeah and that's why progressivism is so easy to get into other countries well americans are progressive so it must be a great idea no that's actually part of the downfall of america we're selling downfall but we're selling it on the back of the success that capitalism brought in that democracy brought in representative uh democracy brought in 
that success of 200 some odd years is being used up by the progressive movement, which is seeking to destroy all of that. I mean, just ask progressives. They're very honest. They want to destroy the Constitution. They want to put in human rights. Uh, why do they want to use human rights? Because they get to tell you what a human right is. They get to delineate what rights you have and how far they go, like the UN saying uh, that they want to allow minors to consent to having sex with grown adults, because that's a human right they have decided and they're going to implement around the world, as opposed to God-given rights, inherent rights, such as being able to be able to complain about that, to object to that, to pr protest against that peaceably, peaceably, and I don't mean pseudo-peaceably, not mostly peaceful, you know, burning down a building on live TV and saying, it's peaceful. No, no, I mean actually peaceful protest. Uh, you don't get that if you only have human rights. It's very, you know, again, we have to stop and think about, critically think, what are they saying and what is the consequence? Yeah. Getting rid of the Constitution is bad at any point of time, but getting rid of it at this time, this point in time, when everyone's thinking is a bit skewed, to put it politely, is probably the worst time ever possible to do something of that magnitude. Because you're going to put absolute crap into it. Yeah, and isn't that the idea? If you want the system to break, don't you want it to be filled with everything that'll make it break? They want to break the system. I mean, it, this is Ilan Omar, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Anna Presley, Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman, Hakeem Jeffries. I'm just running down a list. Uh, Adam Schiff. We're just running down a list of people who have literally said they need to rewrite the Constitution. They need to re rewrite the amendments, that they need to adopt the UN's human rights, uh, um, the list, articles on human rights. They've already said this publicly. This is not new stuff. You have people, um, not the conservatives, the, the Labour Party in, in the UK constantly say this. They constantly say this. What was that woman, the short black woman who was in the Labour Party? Uh, she got bounced. Yeah, yeah, Abbott. She said it. I mean, this isn't new. We're just not supposed to remember it. And we're not supposed to talk about it. We're just supposed to accept it, nod your head, accept that it's happened, and move on. Be silent and obey. Mike, as we're talking about the Constitution, do you mind give, doing a bit of a deep dive on American history and how the founding fathers and what their politics were and how the Constitution was set up? Okay, uh, in a brief... Because we've never learned it in Britain, and it's something I'm actually want to sort of learn about and understand. Sure, and for everyone in who's watching this, Europe, uh, the EU, the United Kingdom, around the world, I know uh, Atlanta and... Excuse me, I'm thinking Australia. Don't know why I called it Atlanta for a second there. Uh, Australia and uh, New Zealand. I know those are some of the areas that particularly watch this and Canada. Uh, we have something that's called the Federalist Papers, which is very important. Um, and if you read this, you will learn exactly 
what the people who wrote the Constitution actually thought about every single aspect. See, back in those days, since they didn't have instantaneous news, what they would do is they actually had to have the debates and they had to take all of the questions and that would be spread around to everyone and then they would gather the response back. So they literally were having in the, basically in the New York Times of their day, they were having conversations where they would have, here's all the problems we see in the constitution as it was written in their several versions and said, okay, here's all the problems. Like, uh, let's take the second amendment as an example. That's a big one. And said, okay, but we have a bunch of people running around with guns. That's a problem. And then they had to answer that question. Well, this is why it's good because we need to be able to, just like the war we just had against the United Kingdom, when a government becomes callous, no longer listens to the people, is not accountable to the people, isn't at least being even Machiavellian to the people, then the people need the ability to revolt. Therefore, they need to be able to be armed. The government should, and they will keep the government on an even keel. They will never be abusive or abusive to an extent that it's oppressive because the people can always turn around and stop them. And there's more people than there's ever an army. So it's a, it's a check. It's the ultimate check and balance to the government. The government will always have that fear that at any point in time, the people will mass rise up and take them down if they go too far. This is why the Second Amendment exists. It's not for hunting. It's not for recreation. It's for self-protection and this ultimately self-protection from the government. That's what its intent is. And they explain that in detail in their world at that time that they wrote it. That's why it's important to read the Federalist Papers. It's at that moment with those questions that we often have now explained then. And so that's the whole idea of the Constitution is it's working off the Magna Carta. And it's basically the natural evolution from the Magna Carta created in the 1300s in England, where the king was sat down and said, no, you can still be the monarch, but you are not very, and I go back to this, you're not being a Machiavellian. You're being completely abusive. Now, in Machiavelli's day, the answer was, okay, and then we just overthrow you. We just kick you out. But that creates chaos that destroys the land. There's going to be internal power vacuum wars going on for decades, if not centuries. It's not productive. It's counterproductive. To save the nation and to have the ability to persevere and go forward, the answer is we're now going to put caps on you. We're going to put road, um, roadblocks on you so that you can never abuse the country as much as you've already done. You'll never get to that amount of power again. That's why there's a parliament. That's why there's a prime minister. Although the monarchy has a purpose and power of its own, but now it has roadblocks. So it can only go so far and then the people step in and they have the rest of the control. But the parliamentary system is confused. It's prone to corruption. It's prone to abuse. It is easy to manipulate. There are a lot of loopholes in this. 
between the monarchy and the parliament and the regular people. So, and part of that being, you can't complain about it. You can't fight against it. It's not an even playing field. You can't really, yes, theoretically, you can get into the House of Commons, which isn't easy, but you'll never get into the House of Lords. You're locked out. So how do we even out this playing field and allow us to have these conversations to let the leadership know, hey, there's a problem. It's growing in the nation and you're not addressing it. You're not paying attention to something that could potentially kill the nation. That's why the Constitution was made. It's the upgrade to the Magna Carta. It's taking all of those centuries of failures, mistakes, loopholes, taking all of that into account with some of the most intelligent men on the planet, some of the most well-educated individuals at the time, all sitting down in a room for weeks, arguing out every single detail. How do we say this and what, and they all were thinking about, and what happens next and what, and then what, and then what? What happens that, what are the logical loopholes and problems and consequences to what we are doing here? Let's work this out, which is why they are so detailed in every single word that they put on that piece of paper and in the order that they put it and the punctuations that they used for every single thing they did because they had argued about everything. And that's why it's so important. So what is... The Constitution, it's an upgrade to the Magna Carta. It is taking care of the loopholes and the consequences that the Magna Carta never envisioned because the Magna Carta had a very limited point of view. It was about maintaining nobility and power. And more importantly, it was focused on limit the monarchy so that it cannot be an absolute abuse. But that allowed for other abuses to exist. In the Constitution, we remove monarchy altogether, that's no longer a problem. Now all the weight comes down to the people. How do we balance the people? We don't have a House of Lords. We have a Senate. You can be elected to it. You don't need to be a noble. You can get into the House of Commons. That's our Congress. Again, more accessibility in these things. And we have three branches that are co-equal, balancing each other all the time continuously. That's the process. That's what it's meant for. That's what they were thinking about and that's what the Constitution is for. Does that, in a nutshell, give you an idea about that? Yeah, that, that explains it very well. Thank you. I keep trying to burn down my house with my cigarettes. <laughs> uh, I keep knocking it over as I'm talking with you. So, just going back to your point on the Second Amendment, in this day and age, A, the government have fighter jets, tanks, mm -hmm. like heavy artillery that the common man won't have access to. That's not true. Stop, full stop right there. That's not true. That's not true. Americans own tanks. Americans own F-16s. Americans own flamethrowers, rocket launchers, machine guns. There are 732,000 machine guns in America right now. 19,000 in New York State. There are 49,000 in New Jersey right now. Legally owned machine guns. There have been four, four times that a machine gun has been used in commission of a crime 
since the 1930s massacre, St. Valentine's Day massacre, since the NFA, the National Firearms Act of 1934 was enacted. Four, four times machine guns have been used. Yeah, you can have everything the military has that is legal. People do have it and they're not used in crimes. That is a fact. You're not supposed to know that. You're not supposed to pay attention to that. And it is confirmed by the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, Division of the United States. It's a fact. So go on. So go ahead, go on. Now that we've corrected the rampant miscommunication that is used and abused to try and convince people you don't have a Second Amendment right, and you can't, as Joe Biden would say, you can't fight an F-16. They did in Afghanistan. Go on. So let's, now that we've diffused the lie, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, hasn't, you've, you've debunked what I'm going to say, but I was going to say, doesn't that, hasn't that already sort of, because the technology advanced since they wrote the amendments, hasn't that sort of taken away the Second Amendment already? Well, so besides the fact that you can have everything the military has, and that's legal. Um, besides the fact that the Taliban, with a bunch of handguns, took on the United States government after 20 years and under the Biden-Harris administration, won, and got an upgrade. They got an entire army, billions of dollars of everything. So Biden's wrong, and that whole ideology is wrong. But let's think of it another way. We're, uh, we are currently on the internet, internationally. We're having an international conversation. Does the First Amendment apply? Does the First Amendment apply to cell phones, newspapers, TV, movies? None of these things existed when they wrote it, but we accept and we understand even the mass production of books did not exist in the manner that it does now. You couldn't have those things. But the First Amendment applies to all of those things, even though technology advanced. What about uh, protecting right to privacy? Does that exist on the internet? Does that exist in your house? Does that exist when you're on the internet? We say, yes, of course it does. Just because the technology advanced, the underlying principle still remains. Why is the Second Amendment different than every other amendment and every other principle? It didn't change. The manner in which we're using it may have advanced so that we can do it faster or bigger uh, than what we did in the past, but it's the same underlying element. So that's another part of the debunk of this myth, that it only applied to recreation. That's a lie. It only applied to sporting. That's a lie. And hunting, that's absolutely a lie. And that uh, it only applied to muskets. And single, they had machine guns. When they wrote the Constitution, there is the pucker gun. It is a machine gun. Is it as fast as today's machine guns? No, it was a multi-barrel repeating firearm. It was a machine gun. They had it then. They knew what these weapons were. You could have a cannon then. People did. So... To say that, oh, these things didn't apply, one is ignorant of history and the facts that existed at the time, as well as your, your 
playing games or they're playing games with the applications of history that we've seen applied to everything else except this one thing they don't like. These are the arguments they're using to try and confuse you and make you think, well, no, no, that's that's not applicable. It's applicable everywhere else. It's applicable in every other context. So, uh, and it's already been addressed in, again, going to the Federalist Papers, looking at the Constitution and its uh, review, we've gone over this for hundreds of years. The argument isn't new against the Second Amendment or many parts of the Constitution. They're not new arguments. They're just being told to a new audience who don't know about the arguments before. So they think it's new and they've been misinformed, kind of like when I said about the National Firearms Act, about having tanks, having F-16s. Most people don't know that, but it's a fact. And it's, we have it categorized and that's just the people we know of. Mm. So technically could mm-hmm. US citizens form their own army with military tanks and airplanes and military weapons. No. They can't form an army, but they can have a militia. Now, I know everyone says, but aren't they the same thing? Even in the United States, people don't know what a militia is. They don't know the difference between a militia and an army. And there's many things. One of the things being that a militia isn't a standing. Armies are standing. They are ready. They're constantly there. In the UK, the United States, you have your Royal Marines. They are a standing army. Any conflict goes on, like over in the, uh, was it the Balkans? And boom, Royal Marines on their way. Wherever the interests of the country is, they are an army ready to go. But a militia isn't a standing army. They're someone who come together. They are regularly trained. They are regulated. They have a hierarchy. But they come together because of an emergent need, kind of like when there's a national disaster. They are legitimate because they are part of the Second Amendment. They are part of the Constitution. This enables the public to gather together in an organized matter, not a mob, but people who are disciplined to be able to protect their interests. Not to take, they're not there to fight against the government. They're there to protect the people and their interests. So again, a different motivation. This isn't a centrally organized unit that is meant to attack another centrally organized unit these are individual groups focused on their local uh, um, freedoms and liberties and meant to protect that community versus some emergent threat. Does that make sense? Yeah, so whereas an army would be set up where it can go on the um, offense, a militia is more to protect. Yeah, they're more de- defensive. More defense. They're not, they're meant, meant to be in offense they're meant to be the ultimate defense of, uh, and they're also more localized as opposed to an army which is more generalized more regional right okay i'm oversimplifying aspects of it but that's the essence of it mm-hmm. so for example if texas felt there was a 
force come in from outside of the Texas border, they could set up a militia to protect the Texans? No, they don't need to. One, they already have the National Guard, which could be some people define a National Guard as a militia. It's not. But they do have state. States can't have armies. That's the National Guard. So they already have that. And militias already exist within Texas, within every state of, of, the, of the entire country. There are many militias that exist. They're not controlled by the state government. They're controlled by the people within their local regions. So if there was a threat to Texas, Texas could use the National Guard. That's what they're there for. If there was an attack against um, Houston, militias in Houston or within Texas could go to Houston to protect Houston, separate of what the National Guard might be doing. So they're separate, equal, and completely independent of each other. But you're, you're, you're thinking of it from a European structure where there's always a king, there's always a monarchy, there's always a government that is in control of every aspect below it. The United States isn't that structure. We don't have that ultimate, everything goes in that pyramid, there's one person or one group in control, everything else is filtered down. No, we are very individualized, individual freedom, individual control. Yeah, it's very decentralized America. Yes. Yeah. Which is, um, just, going back to a point you made about the Falklands, well, you just mentioned the Falklands. Um, yeah. I read a new recent article I think it's about a week ago. Um, China are calling for Britain to give Falklands back to Argentina. Of course they are. Why? Because China is making deals with Argentina. Because China is making moves on South America again. And what's the easiest way to get on the good side of Argentina? Give them land. The evil British still control you. Let me provide you freedom. I'm the help. I'm going to help free you until I put you in shackles under communism and tell you that you can't have religion so you'll disappear like the Uyghurs. Oops! <laughs> <laughs> kind of left out that part. <laughs> <laughs> what happened in Hong Kong? Ooh, Hong Kong? We don't talk about Hong Kong. Okay, there's my point. There you go. Ask Taiwan how free they are. Go on. Yeah, go on. So, yeah, uh, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, what maybe you if they do sort of try and cause that conflict again, then it's even more, more the West are even more distracted with Argentina, with Russia, Ukraine. And then it opens China's doorway up to get Taiwan, right? Halfway. Partially. I mean, they're already, they've already made the declaration. They already, we've talked about this several times. They are mil the Southeast Asia is militarizing. They're militarizing based on every country's declared statements about all their um, various projects have a time frame of around 2027, 2028. And I've already said on this program, many programs, I'm predicting the war starts probably about 2027, late 2027, early 2028 is when we will see China invade Taiwan. That's what all the evidence, all of the nations and their actions all circle around that time frame. So more distractions are nice, but not necessary. There's already multiple conflicts around the world. We have the Iran nuclear deal, which means more global terrorism. 
I want you to I need to emphasize this. The Iran nuclear deal means more terrorism in the world. It means Israel's under attack. It means Europe is under attack. It increases that. When Iran has more money, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps has more funds. They create more terrorism. And France has more caravan uh, car attacks. They have more bombings. Uh, we see more of Europe in flames. That is a direct correlation. Can't say it's a consequence. It's a correlation. And we see it consistently for decades. So I don't think I'm wrong. And in fact, then Secretary of State in 2016, January, January of 2016, on CNBC News, then Secretary of State John Kerry said that the Iran nuclear deal was funding global terror. He said so himself. So people don't have to believe me. Look it up. I just gave you the source. So uh, um, we already have enough problems happening. There's enough distractions. There's enough regions that are going into flames. And that's not even counting Africa, which is 36 countries that are absolutely out of their mind. And we have South Africa, which is lining up with China as we speak. South America is a complete mess all its own. And the British Empire is over. I need to break this to you guys. You may not be aware. The British Empire ended. You lost the Bahamas. You're going to lose the Falcons because diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because American politics is invaded into, you gave us the Beatles, we gave you progressivism. I don't know if anyone would call that a trade, but that's what it is. And so uh, that's why you lost the, the Bahamas and why they went independent. And they're like, oh my God, you know, white slavery and all that. It's ridiculous. It doesn't apply, but that's the excuse. Same thing's going to happen with the Falcons. Does that help Argentina? No. Does that make South America more free? No. But it does give them more of a reason to say thank you, China, instead of saying thank you, United Kingdom, thank you, Europe, thank you, NATO, thank you, uh, United, uh, United States or the United Nations. It puts them into the pocket. They owe China. Which means, what? how would does China take out of that? Trade deal, resources. They take resources. This is exactly what they did in Africa. Get the resources. Why? Oh, well, now if you want those resources, you don't go to Argentina anymore. You go to China. Playing the long game. China plays. They believe in a one China rule. They believed that for some 3,000 years. They don't care about how long it takes. They will win eventually. They just need to play the logistics and get piece by piece by piece in place. And eventually they will win. That's their mentality at the end of the day on everything they do. And because they don't have any in-party politics or politics within the country to just... Oh, sure they do. It's just that they kill the people. That if you lose <laughs> yeah. in China, you die. You, oh, you know, it, I mean, correct that. You don't die. You disappear. Yeah. You can meet up with all of the former heads of Hong Kong. The so 47 leaders of the Hong Kong government are waiting for you right next to the Uyghurs in wherever those people disappear to. You're going to be joining them if you lose in Chinese politics. 
and they have control of the state-run news media. There is no freedom of speech. So no one gets to say, where is that place? What happened to them? And will they ever come back? These are questions that will never be asked, so no one ever has to answer them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, China have it kind of locked off uh, in a way where none of their citizens can even question. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've said to you before, Mark, I used to live in China. Well, I did a no. year. I lived in China for a year. Am uh, I wrong then? No, you're completely right. Uh, I used to speak to a couple of my Chinese friends, and I'll, I wouldn't go too heavy with the politics on, with them, but I'll just mention it here and there, but they're, they're just way too scared to say anything. I'm not, I'm not surprised. It was, it's funny. This is funny. A lot of people, here's something. Here, I'm a black Hispanic. I've lived in Moscow in Russia during the Soviet Union's reign. You, Aaron, have been in China under the Chinese communist reign. We're both men of color, and everyone would assume we've never been outside our own country. How could you possibly know anything about that? And I imagine you have at least a rudimentary understanding of Chinese. Am I right? Um, yeah, to order food and to get by. Yeah. No, yeah. We don't have to be scholars, but here it is. And they would assume we can barely, many people around the world assume because we're men of color of our relative nations that we are maybe know our own language and that's about it i at, at my peak i was speaking five different languages you speak at least two that i'm aware of now this why i bring that up is the perception media is selling us has nothing to do with the reality individuals live through and people are working off these preconceptions saying you can't and I don't know if this happens to you. It happens to me all the time. Mike, you can't know about Russia. I've lived there. I, I study the history. I pay attention to international news. And I actually research all of this. I spend six hours a day doing that. So yeah, I have better knowledge. And people go, but you can't know that. No, you mean you don't know that for a fact. You haven't done the homework. And therefore, you don't want to be embarrassed you don't want to accept what I have to say. Same thing I, I would imagine you've run into with people talking about China, where you go, okay, you have a wealth of knowledge. You have an expertise they cannot tap into. And rather than accept it, very often I imagine, and again, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm guessing if it's similar to my experience, they're going to tell you, you can't have that experience because they don't have it because it's not common to them. Therefore, they have to be right. You must be wrong because it supports their worldview. As long as we think like that individually as nations, you don't have freedom. You have what you have is a slavery of the mind. That's what I've experienced out of it. Now, Aaron. Mm. I've had people say to me that we should copy what China are doing because it's working well for them. Whereas I responded saying, you don't, you're taking your freedoms, what you have in this country for granted. I saw the Chinese students and how they, I don't want to slate them a little bit, but they, they seemed a bit like naive and underdeveloped in comparison to people of the similar age in England. I think that's down to the fact that the state don't allow them to think or critically think about anything. And they're told what to do from a young age and that's what they have to do. 
Yeah. If you don't have the experience, if you're never given the opportunity to have an experience, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not a potter. And so I, I understand the concept of pottery. I'm sure I could make a really warped, useless bowl that'll barely function. But if I was taught about pottery, I could make vases and statues and crap. You know, I'd be fantastic. Now, that's a perhaps silly way of looking at it, but it's a very visual way of looking at it. If you don't have the experience, you can't be expected to be experienced at something. I don't, I'm not surprised, and I've heard from many people like Lily Tang Williams, someone who was raised under Mao, under China's rule, uh, and it's horrific, some of the stories I've heard from her and others, which sounds like you're confirming as well, because people don't have the ability to think. This is the future. This is what progressivism brings us. I was just in the Bronx last week. In a neighborhood, I have had at least one member of my family in that neighborhood in the Bronx for half a century, at least a half century, okay? So we've always been there. We were there from the middle-class neighborhood that it originally was, predominantly Italians and Jewish neighborhood, although there were black people and Chinese people. That, there were people from around the world. It's New York. It's New York City. There were other people there, but it was predominantly Italian and Jewish, and it was middle class. That neighborhood at the time, throughout my life, 70s, 80s, into the 90s, they had two movie theaters, they had a bingo hall, they had a baker, a butcher, law offices, a shoe store, a couple of uh, furniture stores, small mom and pop businesses, two, two supermarkets. This is in a seven block range. Oh, a couple of churches and a Catholic school and a projects and a park. They had all of that within seven blocks. And I'm just going off the top of my head. There's even more things than that. Today, they have one to two legal marijuana stores on every single block. They have at least a dozen hair care stores. They have, um, they have one pharmacy. There are bodegas, not supermarkets. Uh, they have, of course, the liquor store made it all 50 years. That didn't go away. There's no lawyers. There, there used to be four banks. Now there's one which gives you an indication of the business growth in the region. There's one bank, not four. Uh, they have illegal marijuana being sold on every corner, just outside of every single legal dispensary. Again, that's at least two legal marijuana dispensaries on every block. Uh, and if about six o'clock, everything is locked down with gates. Used to never have gates, now every store has gates. It looks like a prison. They have two, two motels and they're build, building a third for illegal aliens. Those illegal aliens are either homeless on the streets, which they never had before, or there, many of them, there was at least a dozen people who were using, this is Boston Road, US 1, the oldest highway in the United States. They're on the side, uh, side of the street, on the sidewalk, using the the road as their mini garage they're doing car wash and mechanic work on the street which is illegal 
um, this is in broad daylight. They turned they turned that same middle class neighborhood into a ghetto, and they did it in twenty years. Mm. What you're describing sounds like something you'd see in a third world country. Yes, it is. They they turned the Bronx, that middle class neighborhood of the Bronx, into a third world ghetto. It's still an American third world ghetto, so it's better than Haiti, but that's what it's imitating. And uh, here's the thing to think about it. When people say, oh, well, progressivism is great, diversity, equity, inclusion, it's important. Yes, there's lots of diversity and equity and lots of different cultures that are in this neighborhood with absolutely no hope of future. They built a dozen different low-income housing, but there's nothing to aspire to. They don't have fresh food, so they have a food desert there. They, The kids who grow up in that neighborhood know that they have lots of access to drugs to numb them to the fact that their community has no upward mobility. There is no middle class. There's no travel. Uh, there used to be two, three travel agencies in that neighborhood. There's none now. You don't have an escape. There is nowhere for you to go. You can have your drugs and stay there and work a menial retail job with no hope of doing anything better. The Catholic school used to have a big yard where all the Catholic students would play in. Two thirds of that yard is now a used car lot. Where's the upward mobility? Oh, you have, but there's low income housing because we have to make sure people have housing. Yeah, except you're giving them low income housing. There's nothing other than that. You don't have anything to aspire to. You're going to live in a ghetto for all of your life. And we're going to make more ghettos and we're going to bring in illegal aliens who are getting paid double what you get paid to live in your neighborhood, not because they want to integrate, not because they're actually even legally allowed to be in the country. And the money they're spending on these hotels and housing these people in these hotels is money that could have been used in the neighborhood to educate the kids, to improve the quality of life in that neighborhood, to help inspire business to come into that neighborhood. No, no, but that's not where we want to spend money because that's not diversity, equity, or inclusion. That's, you know, you're not allowing illegal aliens into, your, into our sanctuary city. You are a bad guy. We'd rather bring down the quality of life, which for the illegal aliens is still a move up, but for everyone else is a move down. We'd rather do that than actually improve people's quality of life. And they have a representative, an individual, uh, Pamela Hamilton Johnson, who is running for elected office. And the most important thing that she has to say for her election isn't that she's going to improve the quality of life, remove the drugs, give people something to look forward to in the future. Her answer is, I'm a black woman, vote for me. Literally, it's on her posters, elect black women. She's the first, she would be the first woman elected into that seat in the Bronx, the 12th district of the Bronx. And you have to vote for her because she's black and a woman and she would be the first. How the hell is that going to help anyone in terms of the economy, in terms of crime, which is skyrocketed, exponentially skyrocketed? What about the low-income housing? <clears throat> this drives me nuts. All of the things that people are dealing with on a daily basis thrown out the window. She's the first. She's black and a woman, so you have to vote for her. You Otherwise, you are a racist, is sexist. 
How dare you not vote for her? You must vote for that Democrat woman, black woman, because you're racist and sexist if you don't, even though she has absolutely no plan to improve the quality of your life. In fact, her plan is to make your life worse by bringing in more low-income housing, by bringing in more illegal aliens, and spending more money on these criminals, taking it outside of your schools, out of developing the area. Yeah, she's going to make it worse, but you got to vote for her because she's a black woman. Imagine, now think about this. By the way, this isn't happening in Queens. You can go to other parts of New York, not happening. It's not happening in Queens. I was in Bayside, Queens. I was in Astoria, Queens. They're not doing that there. They're doing it in the Bronx. Imagine if one of your local politicians, one of your MPs came to your community, I don't know, Leeds or wherever, and came in and said, um, we're going to getify this. We're, we're going to build nothing but low-income housing. We're going to get rid of all every middle-class business there, your lawyers, your uh, travel agents, your tax preparers, your pharmacies, your butchers, your uh, uh, your furniture stores. We're getting rid of all of that. We're going to give you, you know, you'll have a McDonald's, you'll have a Wendy's. We're going to give you a bunch of motels, used cars. Uh, we're going to give you drugs, but you don't get anything else. Would anyone say, hey, yes, do that, please? This is real world. This is the real world we live in. This isn't the Pollyanna pie in the sky. It's a promise. It's wonderful. Here's a rainbow and a unicorn. This is the reality. In 20 years, that's how fast they can destroy your neighborhoods. That's how fast progressivism destroys lives. They have hurt people. They took a middle-class neighborhood and they destroyed the people's lives in that neighborhood, lowered the quality of life. This is what progressivism progressivism brings every single time more crime more drugs less of a future every single time this is why i have these conversations do you think they used that neighborhood in the bronx as an experiment no no the the they've already proven this process the neighborhood in the bronx is just a side effect it's a consequence it's just a natural consequence of what they're doing, and no one cares. No one cares about the Bronx. No one cares about that neighborhood. It's not in the news media. No one's talking about it. You can search all day and night. No one's going to tell you that there's a dozen weed dispensaries with as many gangsters and criminals, low-end criminals, sitting in front of them selling drugs every day to the kids. No mm -hmm. one's going to talk about that story. That's not a news story. It should be. It's not. They don't care. That's sickening, really. Because you've said that's something that's just happened in the last 20 years, so what does that mean for the next 20 years, right? Because it's not going to get any better. It's just going to spread, right? That concept that they put there is going to spread into areas surrounding it. And There's only two ways that it goes from there. Either it becomes Haiti, I mean, fully, full-on, becomes Haiti or like Chicago, just a hell zone where people are dying by the dozens every day, uh, every weekend, I should say. Uh, so it could become that or it goes the other way around and they gentrify it. 
it, everything it becomes so impoverished, the prices drop so low that a group of entrepreneurs come in with the right politics, they kick out everyone, upscale the whole thing because the prices relative to other areas is now more expensive. And trust me, it's expensive. And they upgrade up everything and price out everyone who lived in that community. And they try to artificially rebuild the middle-class neighborhood that actually was already naturally intrinsically there in the first place. Those are the only two options you get. Neither is good for the community. This is the future of progressivism. This happens everywhere where you allow rampant, unchecked progressive ideology, everywhere in the world. Think about London. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Because I live in, on the outskirts of London now. I'm just thinking about a couple of places in London where there's, there's one place I've got in mind where it's really, really run down, similar to how you described, obviously without the legal weed stores, because um, weed's not legal here, but um, they've got, like, do you know what book, you know what bookmakers is? They've got bookmakers, which probably about four, it's a small place, four bookmakers in the, on the high street, um, fried chicken shops, couple of corner shops, um, one big supermarket, like a chain supermarket, and that's pretty much it. Um, the housing around it is very underdeveloped and very impoverished. But some developers have recently come in and started building like large flats there, and they're trying to get yeah, the price and everyone out of the market who currently lives there. Uh, but the community is already not in a good place so a lot of those people will leave and they'll probably leave london because of it and move on to the move into a essex or something deeper further away from london yeah you demoralize them already so they're easy to manipulate they're easy to get rid of so you can change that neighborhood anytime you want either by telling them do this or you're an outcast you're ostracized you're a racist a sexist an ist a phobe for daring to have a question or point out the problem so you either remove for that or you just give up and you just want to be somewhere else, maybe try and save your kids or just to, because you can't afford it. And then they get to manipulate it. This is the pattern. It, it is insidious. And there, and the thing is, most people haven't lived, like I said, I've had at least one family member in that neighborhood for half a century. So we know we have, I wish I could find all the pictures, but we have pictures throughout the decades of how this has changed. And really the change happened in 20 years. There were different communities there. We had some more Asians at one point. We had more Jamaicans at one point. We had more Hispanics at one point. It's New York City. There's an ebb and flow of different communities all the time. You know, the Italians eventually moved out and we had other groups move in, no big deal, but it was still a middle-class neighborhood. And then, like a switch, it changed. And all the middle class moved out, and they pushed in all of these progressive ideas. On the, on the heels of these progressive ideas, they brought in all these things that will make your life better. Legal weed is great for you. You know why they have the legal weed? It's so that you're so addled, so numbed, that you don't notice the degradation that's happening around you.
Yeah, it's giving everyone escapism on the doorstep. Yeah. And this is what your kids are growing up with. Live with this and rather than actually try and improve it, uh, escape to your drug of choice so that you don't have to deal with this anymore. It's really sad. Really, really sad. Because a lot of liberals are pro-drug, aren't they? Drugs. Yeah, they love their drugs. Yeah. They want everyone to have drugs. And I know, I know my friends in the Libertarian Party love that too. I'm against it. Uh, and, and I've heard all the wonderful stories. It's great. It's mind-expanding. It's a good alternative. You have the right blah, blah. I've heard all the arguments. I don't agree with it. You, you might. Other people might. I don't. I think with weed, it's one of them where, yeah, in definitely well, when I was younger, it was glorified. It was a bit like, oh, smoke some weed, you, you're cool. But then as you, well, as I've grown up anyway and, and seen it for what it is, it's, yeah, like you said, it's still glamorized as mind expanding. It's great. It's from the earth. It needs to be legal. But then if you look at it reality-wise, what the people do who are on cannabis, they sit on the sofa eating junk food playing computer games all day and that's the reality of it not what it's sort of sold as even people who are sat there playing video games eating junk food all day and smoking it and then you you, you see them sort of out of the setting they'll still sell you the thought of weed on it's mind expanding it's from the earth it's great it's a relax relaxing time you know violence comes from it but it's doing a completely different type of damage to you because you're just cabbaged and you can't yeah. even think you or become do a vegetable. You yeah. become a vegetable. <laughs> and more importantly, you become docile. You become manageable. You become a slave, a better, more happy slave. What's the best slave in the world? The slave that's addicted to something. Why? Because they'll never escape. They have to escape both the slavery and the drug addiction. They can't do both at the same time. They can only do one or the other. And as long as you keep pumping them with the drugs, they'll never achieve either. It's just that simple. It's really evil when you, again, take away the emotion, which they love to sell. Take away the propaganda. I'm the first. I'm black. I'm woman. Take away the DEI dumb shit that actually serves no purpose other than to obscure the reality of the problem and just focus on What's the problem and what's the consequence of that problem? And look at the reality that you see. What are the real consequences? And when you say that, what happens? You get censored. I, had, I did a live stream last week, uh, Wednesday, last week Wednesday. I did a live stream, 39 minutes, walking through the neighborhood, showing exactly what the reality was at that moment in New York City, in the Bronx. I went to a friend's business, business internet connection, their business on one of their computer terminals, which was live, which was active. There were multiple devices on that internet line, all of them active, all of them being used. I replayed the video for my friend. It's a replay of the live stream that just took place, maybe a half hour after it was out. And it went it's 39 minutes, about minute 20, it started to lag. Shouldn't, but it did. The lag, we timed it. After an hour, we finally turned it off 
the lag had never stopped. They didn't YouTube. I even complained about this on Twitter to YouTube saying, why is there a lag, an hour long lag on a 39 minute video live stream replay with on a, on a business internet connection with, which is live and having no lag on any other device in the entire business. Why is that one video lagging out that badly? No response from YouTube. It's censorship. It's suppression. They didn't stop people from seeing the video. They just made it impossible to see the whole video. They just wanted people to get frustrated and walk away. They didn't want people to understand the reality or, God forbid, actually comment about it. This is the problem that in the UK, in Europe, in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Israel, this is the biggest problem that we are facing right now. And we're having people like Richard Blumenthal, Senator Richard Blumenthal, and Representative Jeff Jackson out of North Carolina that are coming to us and saying, don't worry, the government's going to fix it. We know there's a problem because the government made it, and we're going to fix it by giving the government even more power to do it even more. And that's happening in the UK, too. Mm. UK does it all the time. Yeah, definitely, definitely happening. How many things can you guys not say without being arrested? Mm. Well, there was that. What did you mention on on a podcast a while ago? In that someone, um, yeah, this song lyrics. Yeah, this trying to recall it. Um, this girl's friend passed away, and his favorite song had the uh, N word in it. Um, on an Instagram post, she posted like, "Rest in peace, X, whatever his name is." Um, with the song lyric after it, and it did get the M word in it, um, and she got arrested for it. Yeah, see, if it's such a bad thing, why do you allow? Why did you allow the song to be made? It's such a crime to say to utter this word. Then why did you make it legal and profitable to actually say it and make this utterance in the first place? Does that make any sense when we stop and think about it? It's bad for me to replay something that you published and made money off of in the first place. Why? How can that be a crime? Isn't if, if you're saying it's the utterance of that word, then why are you selling it? Why is someone making a profit off it? Why is that allowed in the first place? Either it's free speech or it's not. You can't have both. You can't play both ends of this game but they are, and you're not supposed to stop and complain about it. You're just supposed to accept it. Mm. We, had a, we had a discussion on um, a, re- a recent podcast, you know, the Great Resist that we do with Alice and Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was around um, the sex industry and pornography. And Alice brought up that, was it the US government or the Canadian government income? That, some regular they're looking to put some regulations in to restrict access to porn both yeah yeah okay um whereas my view on it was i don't think the government should tell us what we can and can't like you, you don't have to agree with porn or the sex industry but the government shouldn't be telling us whether 
we can access it or not. Well, uh, think about it. The same government that's saying they have to have restrictions on your access to porn is the same government that's saying that your eight-year-old should be able to uh, uh, consent to sex with adults, the MAPs, the minor attracted persons, otherwise known as pedophiles. And it's the same government that also says that that same eight-year-old has the right and we must blindly affirm chopping off the genitals. What? <laughs> this is the same government. These are the same institutions. It makes, it makes zero sense. It's take yeah. with one hand and slap us with the other. Yeah, yeah. it's... How can he allow the sexual exploitation of children but not let a grown adult decide what to do with their own sexual adventures or ventures, whatever they want to do? You know, if, you have, if I have to choose between allowing children to chop off their genitals and or allowing uh, uh, grown adults, minor attracted persons, otherwise known as, and now they're changing that, by the way. So they've changed it. They're trying to make it youth attracted persons because that sounds better because minor obviously means illegal. So they're saying youth instead of, so you may hear either map or they're trying to make it a yap, which is youth attracted person because they're playing the semantics game so that you don't recognize they're talking about minors, children, babies. They don't want you to think about that. It, it, that's how evil this is, how insidious and how they're trying to manipulate this. They're, so you either have to accept the gaps, the maps, the pedophiles, and or accept the mutilation of genitals for a lifetime. Or, and at the same time, as an adult that is not involved with any other consenting individual, you can't express yourself in a manner that doesn't harm anyone. And I understand now you have the feminists who come in and go, oh, well, they're abusing women, maybe in some cases, and some women use it to make money. And this is their business and they do very well. And, you know, it's their, according to the feminists, their body, their choice. Isn't that the saying? And if they their choice is to display their body, why are you just trying to stop them? There's so many levels. It doesn't see this is the thing about gross. It doesn't make sense because they they constantly contradict themselves in their never-ending effort to create even more and more categories of human beings and then rank those categories based on whatever is the popular fad of politics at any given time. And it constantly conflicts whatever they said a week ago. It is, I don't understand. What? I think even trying to make categories of different human beings is against what they should believe because everybody should be seen as an individual. Everyone's different. I might have some views I agree with, with Cam, I have some views I agree with you. I have some views I agree with somebody else. Like, I don't fit into one category. I fit into several hundreds of different categories. Well, let's make it simple. So the progressive ideology 
gender identity, gender and identity politics and feminism. Okay, men and weak women are equal, but we have candidates who are running, and you're supposed to laud them for being a gender. Okay, this seems to conflict. If they're equal, then it doesn't matter what gender you are. You're the best person, so you get the job. But no, no, no. But I'm special because I have a gender. So either the genders don't exist or they do exist. But we're supposed to praise them both ways. That's a conflict of the concept. It doesn't make sense. Men and women are equal. Then why do we have a women's division of, of, of sports? Because men dominate. But men and women are equal. So why are we separating them? Doesn't make sense. Their logic doesn't follow through. You're not supposed to actually ask the question and follow it. You're not supposed to think about it. You're supposed to say, of course. But it doesn't make sense. By their own logic. I'm going by their words, their meanings. I'm equal to a man. Fantastic. Then you don't need to be lauded for being a woman. But I'm a woman, so you have to support me and you have to laud me. What rule did you make? Give me a rule. I'll... You know, I can try and at least follow the rules or make sense of the rules if you have a rule, but your rules make no sense because they conflict themselves. And you want to blame me for not understanding what the hell your policy is? But, you know, again, we're the bad guys for pointing it out. We're the bad guys. I'm going to be called a sexist and a racist for several of the things I said today. In the UK, they would come out and arrest me for the things I've said today. <clears throat> and here's the thing. But this is what they've told us. I'm just actually paying attention to the details. And I'm actually looking at, okay, and this is the consequence of what you have said. It's like when you were talking earlier about the um, Constitution, and you mentioned just because of the way maybe technology was back then, they spent, well, they spent weeks debating what was going to be in the amendments and why but if you look at things today and as you've just mentioned there as well things change every week and people's opinions on things change every week so whereas in the past we could rip things apart to find the problems to sort of build a solid foundation on an idea which could then turn into one of the amendments for example what we've got today is people have ideas. They might be a woman, they might be a black woman, they might be a black trans. So their idea should stand more solid and is less allowed to be ripped apart because it will hurt their feelings, as, as you always mention. But what are we actually building here? We're just building off all of these sort of ideas that people just randomly come across and think, oh, I feel like this today. Let me post this out there as a tweet to 100,000 other DEI supporters and followers, and then they'll worship it as if it's the Bible. But we're not allowed to rip anything apart. We're not allowed to question anything. We're not allowed to state simple flaws like you've just done. So we're entering a world of absolute chaos where everything's allowed and nothing's not allowed. Nothing's wrong anymore. Think of the morality of that. 
and think of the consequences of that morality where I'm doing it because I feel, I feel. It's my truth, not the truth. It's my truth. It's all subjective. If everything is subjective, if everything is true based on your subjective view of it, then what the hell is illegal? What's a crime? What's a violation of rights? And who gets to enforce it? Who gets to objectively review your subjective truth in action? Again, this is consequences. That's a very, what I just described is what they are selling right now and a very complicated series of consequences come out of that. When things are subjective and policies are being put forward that can be seen as subjective, that gives the people in power more control because they can decide what's right and what's wrong at any given time. Because it's up to their subjectivity. Well, that's why they can subjectively say that there's 125, there's, depending on whose subjectivity you want to accept at any moment, there are 3, 5, 27, 32, 62, 81, and or 125 different genders. I swear to God, this is correct. Go into Google how, and search how many genders. That's it. Search how many genders and you will get credible sources that will give you every one of the numbers I just mentioned, if not more. And here's the thing. So subjectively, that's supposed to be true. All right. Objectively, we're supposed to, we are mandated, we're being mandated to accept, to blindly affirm all of that is true. What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong 1% of the time? What objective, concrete consequence have we built up or prepared for in case we are wrong? What if there are, instead of 125, there's 61 genders? What if there's 32? What if there's three? What if there's only two? What happens to all the people we have sold these ideas? They have lived their lives. They have made the commitment to these different ideologies. I'm not even getting into the trans thing and you can't replace genitals that you chopped off. You can't go backwards on that. But forget about that. <clears throat> Let's talk about just the gender ideology. <clears throat> Let's look at just the gender ideology and say 1% of whatever the number is, I don't care if there's 10,000 genders or if there's two, excuse me, three. Let's say that you are wrong 1% of the time. What are we doing to help those 1%? It's not even a conversation. It's not even a concept. It's not even something that they have ever considered. What is it? And then what happens to those people who have now found themselves ostracized. They are drifting out in the void with no help whatsoever, being told they don't exist. What is the backlash of those people? If 1% of that 1% take it as a negative, as a violent negative, what happens? How many people get hurt? 
we've seen it before, right? But on a much, much smaller scale with, uh, I watch a few, I've, I've watched quite a few documentaries on cults in America. I find America and cults quite fascinating. So we've seen it before when the cults break up. These people are broken people who their whole, a lot of people who are born into the cults anyway, grown up thinking this cult, whatever the thinking of that cult is, is what life is and that's it. But then when them cults come to a stage where they get found out or something happens and, and the cult breaks up, a lot of these people have bad mental health challenges um, going into what we would call the real world. Yeah, broken, damaged people running around loose. Well, that's on a much, much smaller, tighter scale than what this, which I'm saying is a cult because it is, right? No, it's not a cult. It's a fad. It's a fad. This will go away. Five years, two years, 10 years, it's going to disappear. It's a fad. It's like emo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's emo, but you're actually signing up to a permanent change of your body within well but you're you're telling people who don't have a concept of the future ask an eight-year-old can they envision being half a century old being 50 years old they can't ask a 20 year old what it is to be 55 they have no concept of it it's beyond them once you get to be 30 40 yeah you start understanding what it is to be alive that long and the consequences but you talk to 18 year olds they have no 25 year olds, they have no concept of the consequences of what they've already done and how it's going to affect them going forward. They don't have enough life experience for that. So when we look at the, we're, we're now putting in place for a couple of generations, consequences they have not even considered because they don't care. At the end of the day, let's be honest, the progressive leftist ideology does not care they don't care if you live they don't care if you die they don't care the quality of life you have their purpose is to control they are do you obey and whatever it takes for you to obey they don't care and i know progressives are going to look at me and go mike you just don't understand yeah i do have you not been listening to the conversation i think we all understand in detail it's that you don't like it, and I don't care. I don't care if you like it or not. I care if you understand. I, I care if you disagree. I don't care if you feel, because feelings have nothing to do with it. Does that make sense? The difference between feel and consequence? I, I recall... Um, a conversation me and Aaron had months ago, maybe even talking over a year ago, um, when we first sort of started interviewing guests, and this is when we were going down the rabbit holes of World Economic Forum, BlackRock, and the just the plain establishment gaining control. But we've, I remember Aaron suggesting to me, we need to have a guest on that's pro WEF pro the Great Reset, pro all of the jazz that comes from that. Have you ever spoke to someone who is pro, let's just say, the Great Reset? Not openly, no. Um, not because I don't try. Uh, I, I have 
I have an open door policy to every politician and every candidate around the world that wants to have a conversation. I'm a very passionate man, as people are obviously seeing when they see my videos in the clips. In fact, one of the clips getting 10,000, almost 11,000 people watching it of me explaining something that I'm sure the left hates intensely. <laughs> but when I do interviews like this one, it's yes, I'm passionate. I'm always passionate, but I'm also listening and we're having a conversation and I'm expressing my understanding, my views, my fears, my understanding of the consequences. When I have politicians on, I know the issues as well as any politician. I'm, I'm, I could debate any politician on any issue on either side of any issue. And I make that a point so that when they come on, I don't need gotchas. I don't need hot mics. I'm going to ask you a question and then I'm going to shut up and you have to answer the question. And if you don't, I'm going to keep going until you do. That's the rule I have. And I don't edit. So no one's going to, I'm not going to clip it. I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I do it unedited. And it's, here's the question. I understand the question and I understand the answer. So if you try dancing, I'm going to hold you accountable. That is terrifying to politicians. Left, right, libertarian, doesn't matter. They are, I am known as someone who is extremely fair and extremely dangerous to talk to. Because if you don't know what you're saying, I will point it out very quickly. Not because I'm doing a gacha, but because I do understand the issues and I do understand the consequences. No one from the WEF will ever speak with me. Because I will sit there, like with our conversation about 15-minute cities, and go, well, here's the problems. Here's the consequences. Here's the political ramifications of it. Do and Where am I missing the point? How are these things not logical? We don't want to talk about that. You're just supposed to accept it. I'm sorry, I don't. Because the premise is illogical and flawed and detrimental once you apply it to, okay, the step out of the first week, fantastic. What happens five years later? What happens 10 years later? What happens to the next generation? Oh, we don't want to talk about that because you know it's bad. So no, they, they won't. The other thing is you also have a large portion of the left that are, they're, they're caught in a quandary. They hate big business, but they're supporting big business. The WEC, the WEF, they're big business. They control ESG, big business. But they hate big business. Big business is a bad guy. Big business is, you know, pharmaceuticals and all these. They're terrible, except when they're giving you mandated uh, vaccines. Then they're good. Except when they're on your side of an issue, then they're great. Bud Light, we're supposed to, you know, champion Bud Light because of Dylan Mulvaney. Except it's a major corporation that they hate, that makes profit, that's, you know, stealing people's money. Which one is it, guys? This is why they don't want to talk about this. You know, every country in the world, every culture in the world, for the history of the world, looks to protect children from those who would abuse and um, misuse children. But the left looks at the history of the world and says, no, no, but youth-attracted persons, minor-attracted persons are a naturally occurring event 
It is perfectly natural and children can consent. There is no progressive that wants to come out publicly and say, I agree with that. They will never do that until they can, until the moment they can make us believe this is natural. Then they'll all come out. But up until that time, they're like, no, 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 I don't believe in that. Then where are these ideas coming from? Who's pushing this? Why is this part of ESG? If no one believes it, it's like, it's like the old saying, no one watches porn, but it's the most successful business on the internet. In a year, the porn industry makes more money than the entire, all of Hollywood and all of uh, movies over, you, you take the profits of five years, maybe 10 years, and porn makes more money in one year than all of that, but no one watches porn. I think it's a hundred billion dollar industry. Yeah. No, no one, no one watches it though. It's, I'd have never seen it in my life. It's this dichotomy. They need this separation. Because if you pose it in front of them and say, well, do you agree with these guys? They'll say, no, because they're big business, because they're autocratic, because they're oogliarchies, because they don't believe in individual freedom. But yet, they're supporting every underlying principle that these guys are putting out. And as long as they don't connect the two, no one presents them and says, well, in supporting one, you support the other. Until they get confronted with that, it's okay because they don't have to worry about the mental gymnastics because they can't make that somersault. Are you uh, religious, Mike? Somewhat. Do you think the lack of, um, or the doubt, uh, the decline of religious values in Western nations is what's causing this rise in progressiveness. Not quite. Not quite. Um, religion and morality go hand in hand very often, and culture. So that there's many different religions. There's many different moralities. There's many different uh, uh, views on all of that and culture. So in any successful, growing, developing society, their hand in hand with that success and that growth is a strong moral base, which is usually attached to a religion, a belief system, whatever religion it may be, that belief system, which has tenets, certain absolute tent poles that are absolute that are supported just because we say so. The moment you take away those tent poles, when you no longer have absolute belief in that idea, well, then you lose your morality and then you lose your society. These are all things built on each other. But modern progressive ideology is a religion of its own. As much as they want to say it's not, it is. Why? It's built on a belief of an outcome that has no logical way of reaching it, that is empirically not going to ever get you there, that is that must be adhered to or else you will be punished. This is like the Romans saying we have to throw the Christians into the lion's den. Okay, you don't believe in um, the trans-political movement, again, not the people, 
the political movement. You don't believe in the trans political movement. You are evil. You have to be ostracized. We're going to kick you off of every social media platform that exists. No one will ever be able to talk to you again. How is that not the same thing as throwing Christians into a lion's den? You have to die. You have to be silenced. We, you can't talk about this. It's the same idea. And you can say that about the feminist movement, gender identity politics, race relations, critical race theory. You can't speak about that. You do not get the choice. You must obey. You must accept this tenant. You must believe. But the difference between that religion, the progressive ideology, versus world religions is its tentpole isn't built on a morality, a unifying view. It's built on control, which is exclusionary. Progressivism is exclusionary. Religion is inclusive. And when you have an exclusionary system that is your belief system, you can't build anything on that because everything that could be built on it is excluded from it. So it's frail and it falls apart. Whereas religion is inclusive, not to say that there aren't conflicts, but it's inclusive to those in that religion. And you can build on that. You build a morality on that. You build a society on that. You can build, and those societies can last centuries, if not millennia. You can't build anything on sand. And that's progressivism. Because it's not built on unifying it's built on exclusion it's built on again going back to equity you are a category and those categories have priorities and those priorities shift sometimes on a daily basis that's sand you can't build on that and it is a never-ending creation of categories that have to be prioritized it never ends Oh, now we got fat, um, body shaming. So you're too fat or you're too skinny. Uh, your gender, male, female, 125 different genders, who you're having sex with, who you're not having sex with. Uh, it goes on and on. The color of your skin. The Again, it, it just keeps going and going. It's a quagmire. This is quicksand. You can't build on that. Because there's nothing to build on. Because it's always breaking everything down. It's always splitting people apart. So are you a trans? Are you a, a, a trans male, female? So you're trans, religious or not religious, black or white or polka dot. Uh, you're skinny and you're fat. You got like, what, 15 categories you have to fill out to be able to figure out whether your voice is more important than my voice. And if I, and if I get it wrong, you're ostracized. Kick them off of the internet. Don't ever talk to them again. Don't hire them for any job. Lions in the, Christians in the lion's den. That's what that is. I know progressives are going to hate this. The left is going to hate this. <laughs> but does that does what you've just said then does that not mean the downfall of religion has contributed towards the fact that progressive is on the rise 
Yeah. Or they, as they would like to say, the secular is advancing while the religious is decreasing. Yeah. They always like to word these things in different ways so that it's hidden. So it makes it sound really good. Secular is increasing. The religious is decreasing. That's a good thing. No, no, it's not. I, I really, by the way, just to say, I really like the way you've just explained that because um, you've just, I've not, I've not, didn't, I kind of knew it, but I didn't look at it in the way that you just explained it, where society has been built on religion, culture has been built on religion, and it is all firm foundations that it's all been built on. Because if you look at religion and what religion tells you and what um, the commandments in, in the Bible talk about, it's all good, positive, helpful, mor moral, morally good sort of acts. Altruistic. Yeah. And it's, it's a similar thing. And I had this conversation with Aaron a long time ago now. But it's, it, the Bible reminds me of this, a similar sort of thing that's been created, but with your uh, amendments in in the u.s amendments it's sort of been built in a similar sort of way where these 10 amendments are to help the people they're to help they're here to they're, they're here for positive influence and that's what the bible was created on to help people to guide people to have positive influence among the people well think of this the Magna Carta and the Constitution are built on Judeo-Christian values. The Judeo-Christian values existed first, and then they made the laws built on those Judeo-Christian values. Think of it. Think of it another way: the Romans, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians. Name a society. The Sumerians. Name a society that we can think of today that didn't have religion as a core part of that society. I am not aware of any society that existed for more than, you know, a minute that actually that we can name that didn't have a strong religious base with them. Different religions throughout those times. I mean, Sumerians, Romans, today's society. There's a, a society today that I can think of. China don't have a religion. But yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. There's the Shinto and the Buddhist, uh, the Taoist. I know they say the, the Communist Party life. say that they don't want any religion in China. That's communism, and that's the same thing that they said in Russia, <clears throat> in the old Soviet Union. That's in North Korea. That's in Venezuela, Cuba. Anywhere there's communism, then of course they do not want religion. Because again, religion takes away from control. God has the ultimate control, not government. Communism is about government having control. Government controls everything. The state is your religion. So they don't want to compete. And you can't compete against something that is omnipotent and, and all-encompassing. You can't fight that. We're human beings. So they have to get rid of it. But there are religions in the history of China, in the region of Southeast Asia, like I said, Taoism, Buddhism, uh, Shinto. There's several different belief systems that do exist. And if you look at the core of those areas, even looking at the five Chinas 
time frame of China before it unified, and even after it unified, up until the communist revolution under Mao, there was religion as the basis that allowed them to Okay, work. yeah. As the foundation. That, that's the foundation. Yeah. In every case, we can find that foundation. Today, we are watching those foundations be replaced by quicksand, by a system that is built on deconstruction, not construction. Uh, and no one wants to talk about this. No one wants to have this conversation. The left does not want anyone to ever consider this. Again, you don't have to agree with me. Do you understand? Do you understand the argument? And then you should ask the question, why isn't anyone allowed to have this discussion on the major media? Well, because we're headed in the same footsteps as China is today. Essentially. Well, the world is not in China. We're becoming, the world is becoming an autocratic and dictatorship. We're seeing more dictatorships, more autocracy, more militants in the world, which because those are elements found within communism makes it seem like we're going more and more towards ultimately communism that's not true we're just becoming more autocratic more dictatorship more ugliarchy but they're all on the same side that's all on the same side of the spectrum as communism so that's why it's all in the same movement communism and fascism both meet in the center right they all come around to the same thing. Yeah, yeah. they come around to the same point. Do, would you say that's where nations are heading to more fascist states? No. no. Not extreme. Fascism isn't an autocracy. Fascism is built on state control. It is a lighter form of socialism. Where it's state control, the state is in charge of all of the major actions. But in a fascist system, individuals still have some freedoms. They're not categories. They're still individuals. Once you cross over to socialism, yes, the state still has control, but you're no longer an individual. Now you're a category. Once you make that cross from individual to category, now you've gone from uh, fascist systems or dictatorships. Well, dictatorships don't even care. Autocracies don't even care whether you're an individual or not. So that's the other side of the spectrum where you're you don't exist you don't exist in the fact that they're denying your existence as opposed to uh, in the communist system you exist as a single unit you have no individuality and fascism is opposed to that dictatorship where you don't exist you are an individual but you're an individual subservient to the state perhaps that's the best way to explain it in the most simple terms without trying to be all graduate students, you know, I'm trying to make it real world for people. So that's the easiest way I can think of explaining it. Mm. Yeah, you, you definitely have a good knack for uh, simplifying the, com the well, what we thought or what I thought were, was complex. You've got a good way of uh, simplifying it to show that actually these things aren't complex and certain they're, people. They're not. It's just been 50 years of walking along the low road, as the Buddhists would say, walking the low road of life, running into all the problems. <laughs> yeah. um, I've got a quick question for you, a bit of a side note. But when your logo of the dragon. Yes, yes, there it is. Yeah. Uh -huh. why, why a dragon? 
Um, it's part of a couple of things. So a dragon represents power. It's a powerful creature in mythology or pretty much around the world to some degree or another. So it evokes strength and power. It, it also evokes fear. Politicians and many people who are politically opposed to me fear me. Not because I'm some super powerful person, but because of the power of my words, thus the flames. It's I'm evoking what I understand. I'm, I'm talking about the consequences. I'm talking and understand. Again, dragons are known as very knowledgeable creatures. They're very intelligent creatures. So we have a powerful, intelligent creature that has a purpose that is able to scorch the earth with its voice, with its with its mouth, with its emissions. Um, that and it has and it evokes terror in its enemies. How is that not a dragon? How am I not doing that too? I may not be smog, but you know. I'm in there. So that's where I get the dragon from. Um, <clears throat> many people may not realize there's a lot of thought that went into that. But I've always wondered. I've never managed to ask you because we've always been going down. But, you know, could you send me over your logo for this? I was like, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask him why the dragon. But does it make sense now? Yeah, big time. It suits, it suits your, your style. 100%. Now you've explained it as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, you uh, are the dragon. Yeah. Uh, I'm a political dragon. You know, there's, <laughs> we've got silver dragons and gold dragons, red dragons and black dragons, and I'm a political dragon. <laughs> Perfect. That's allowed by the rules of d and I'm a geek <laughs> It's in the rules. Actually, it's kind of like a gold dragon if you're really going by D&D, &D, but that's another thing. Silver and gold dragons do that. But anyway, um, but they're lawful good, and I'm, if anything, lawful neutral, maybe pure neutral. Uh, that's, that's funny because I've, I've only recently, maybe, what, two weeks ago, started my first ever D&D &D session. Mm. So I'm, I'm just sort of getting what, you, what you're on about. I'm still in the teething process of... Oh, D &D is, you know what I love about D&D? &D? Um, and it's something that I think is important. And I'm a big gamer. I love games. And a lot of people, I've said it before, I don't watch movies. I don't watch TV series. I mean, very rarely. Uh, I don't like giving money to ideas that I hate. I, I watch anime. I play video games. And I watch the news. That's me. But I remember, and one of the great things is D&D. &D which got me into Lord of the... Actually, I went, was reading Lord of the Rings and that got me into D&D &D originally. Um, and I was captured and I love playing Dwarven assassins or Dwarven thieves. I just like that mix, which is weird and a little complicated. It's tr tricky, but I like it. But the thing I loved about D&D, &D, and this is back in 78, when I got into it, I think it was in, yeah, second edition. Yeah, fairly new then. Yeah. Two uh, advanced D&D was just coming out at that time. This is how long ago I go. The great thing is it's all in your mind. It is a visualization and a communication. To play D&D, &D, you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to critically think. 
You have to be able to imagine. It, you are the expression of everything. So you're taking on this character, you're imagining this world, you're communicating your views and ideas with everyone around you. Consequences are coming. You're constantly thinking on your edge of the seat. There's always something new. And at, at any given moment, the DM, the god of the system, can throw a monkey wrench into everything just on a whim because they had a whim. So you're never safe and nothing is ever exactly right. You can't get that experience. And today's society is built on, I need, uh, Darth Vader has to have a backstory. Why? Michael Myers uh, from the uh, um, Halloween. Halloween series has to have a backstory. We have to know how he became a bad guy. We have to know why they became bad. No, I don't. Darth Vader was iconic and is iconic. One of the top three greatest villains ever. Why? We don't know his backstory. It doesn't matter. He just is. Period. Uh, but the reason why we have to have these backstories, why we have to go back to these prequels, why we have to explain things, or at least attempt to, kind of like with the Alien series, Evian Covenant, God help us, why are they giving us all this crap? Because you don't have imaginations anymore. Because you can't just dream and critically think and just make it up for yourself and communicate. Kids are so stuck. We're so stuck into these com these computers, this electronic shackle. Well, they're doing all the thinking for you, right? I don't That's have to consider anything. The, the, I play. I think I started. Was it two? It might be three weeks ago now. When I did, the, we did the first session. We're all new to it anyway. The, the guys right. who I was doing it with, which is even better. And straight away coming off it, I was like, I was on a um, adrenaline rush, and the, the I don't know what it was the um the creativity side of it and the, I, I, throughout it i knew this is helping my creativity uh, my communication sorry tenfold because he's putting us in a shit situation and we're all being creative to get out of it but you need to communicate your creativity but the thrill that you get from the creativity of it because it's all in your head and you're relying on other people's creativity to describe to you what's going on so you need to align with them and it builds that that character relationship that you get from it is probably different than you can get from any video game anyway. Yeah. And it's an interpersonal relationship. You're now also developing your friends. You get to talk about it afterwards. You get to, and now we're growing that world by the mere fact that you guys will talk about what your characters did. You are naturally as a consequence, expanding that universe expanding the capabilities of that universe as you talk as you imagine as you communicate there are multiple levels that this is a positive that is benefiting you that you will never get in a movie in a tv series or from uh, someone else's propaganda it's all on you and it's multiple ways that it could affect your life that you're not even considering because it's entertainment but even the old entertainment was meant to teach lessons. The uh, fairy tales that we now think about, you know, whether it's Snow White or Red Riding Hood or any of those, 
those were lessons. They were entertaining. They were meant to be directed towards children who can't understand concepts of stranger danger, as an example. But we could say Red Riding Hood, and you can get that. And they can still get the concept across. We can understand true love. Kids don't understand that. Snow White does. They understand that. We can understand Bambi. This, And so there's ways this affects us all, which is why I love D&D, which is why I love that realm of the sci-fi genre, because it's an exploration of what could be, the possibilities. And in understanding that, we then expand our minds about, okay, the universe as a whole. If I can understand a universe I'm creating, I have to understand the universe I'm in to understand the difference. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. When you go down the, when you think about it, it gets deep. And, but I, I love Dean Dean. Like I said, I love my assassin. By the way, just be very careful if you ever want to invade a cobalt uh, clan cave. That doesn't often very, go very well if you don't have enough people. Three people are not enough at level two. Not enough. Yes, you, you, punch them, you push them, and they fall over and die. But there's 50 of those little slimes running around, and they're not stupid. Then when you run away from them, don't run into an owlbear cave. This does not end well. And anyone who's ever played D&D or watched, even if you just saw the D&D movie, which surprisingly wasn't as woke as they made it out to be. They killed that movie by telling everyone it was woke. Oh, is it not woke? Because I've not even watched it just for the pure fact I thought it was woke. I, I didn't go to the movie theaters because it was woke. The moment that the director came out and said, yes, we were trying to emphasize the woke with the women and we uh, insulted the man and he said he's weak and useless. I said, uh, then you obviously don't understand D&D and I don't have a reason to watch this movie. <laughs> Then my sister, uh, who's younger, all my sisters are younger. One of my sisters uh, really said, no, no, you got to watch it. I know you, you got to watch this. So I watched it. And it's actually an entertaining movie. It's not nearly as woke as they made it out to be. Yes, he, the, the bard isn't the typical masculine hero. Then again, he's a bard, not a fighter. Not the same thing. And they have a fighter. They have a barbarian who happens to be a woman, Michelle Rodriguez. Fantastic. I don't care uh, because that's the character. It's part of that world. They have magic users and everyone's a somewhat tongue-in-cheek representation of the characters in D&D, which is, in fact, somewhat tongue-in-cheek at times. With a decent storyline, makes sense. It's realistic for that world. And it's engaging. You actually enjoy watching these characters go through the story, and the story makes sense. And it just so happens that some of the leading characters are women. But you don't care, because it's not about them being women. It's about them being the barbarian, being a mage, being a thief. It's about them being, or druid, it's about them being the characters they are. I would actually recommend it. Yeah, so you can sort of detach from, because that's what 
so good about D&D anyway is the fact that you can um, detach from real-world problems even just for a couple of hours. And I have no, yeah, I have no problem in D&D that there's a, a, a woman who's a fighter, level 15, um, and just kicking bugbear ass. I got no problem with that, you know? It, but if you want to tell me, and that's what women should be today, I'm sorry. You're you're not watching a bunch of five foot four women run around in plate armor do anything. Men at six foot two training all their lives could barely do that. And you're telling me someone who's five foot four put it on for once in their life and they're gonna be some badass? No, it's not realistic. I'm sorry. There's a reason why it's a fantasy. <laughs> yeah, a fantasy will. Yeah. It, you know, not to say women can't be badasses. They're just not going to be badasses like men are badasses. And that's okay. That's perfectly okay. I want, you know, I bet you Joan of Arc was gay. <laughs> Who's that? Joan of Arc. Oh, Joan of Arc. Yeah. <laughs> I know she's French, so no one cares, but you know, whatever. Um, yeah. Can't have a show without a dig on the French. There you go. <laughs> yeah, your history with the French. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. What should we do? Should we wrap it up here? Have we got any more questions? Uh, well, they should check out the clip you guys do. You do some great clips, by the way. I have had a lot of people say they enjoy the clips that you do, the interviews and not just with me, but with everyone that you do interviews with, you do a nice job of doing that clip style and with the words. I like that. I can't do it. You guys do it. You make it look good. Uh, I want people to know that this is we're going to do this at least once a month. We always pay attention to the comments. I, I love to respond to people's comments, whether you agree or disagree. Um, as long as you're not telling me that I'm just old, evil, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the rebirth of I know Vader or the Emperor. I could care less about that. Um, and oh, and the logo. Give us some comments about the logo. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, we're definitely going to do this. I mean, doing this every month with the amount of stuff that's going on in between, we're going to have plenty. The topics to discuss every single I've been talking about politics for 17 years. <laughs> There's always plenty to talk about. <laughs> uh, but I think this is a unique way of looking at it. I mean, the interaction, the questions, I think it's really unique. And I look forward to, especially for people in the EU, you know, everyone in Europe, ask the questions to Cam and to Aaron and ask them to ask me what do you think about what America is doing and how it inter interacts? Because I also learn more about and listening to the question. I think questions are some of the most important things we could possibly ever communicate with someone. It tells us everything. The, the answers aren't nearly as important as the questions that are asked, I think. And, and I believe that. And I believe that with all the interviews I do, is the question is more important than any answer I ever get. And we learn more about each other by these things. How would you answer this? What do you know about this? Were you surprised to know that Aaron, that Aaron can speak Chinese? That he's been in China? Ha ha! Why? 
Why were you surprised by that? There's the big question. You're surprised that I know how to speak Russian. Oh, you're surprised by that. Why are you surprised by that? What does that say about what you've been led to believe? Let's have that conversation. This is what this is for. This yeah, is why I, this. I think why this is a good group is because you've obviously got the knowledge, but you've got a way of simplifying it. So me and Aaron, curious minds, as you can probably tell, we're asking the questions that many people are thinking, and you're giving us not the normal answer you would get if you was watching a politician on TV. You're giving us a simple, straightforward, no feelings, none of that sort of chaos that comes with the usual way a lot of people answer questions. And it's just straight, pure facts. And even with the theory side of things, the, you present theory in such a way that even, well, yeah, like a nine, ten-year-old could probably get a good understanding of what you're on about. Well, this is what gets people involved, gets engaged. It's not, they, they, the only reason why the media and politicians try and make this seem like it's, oh, it's so difficult. You just can't understand it all. It's to silence you. They're just trying to keep you out. This is a way to gatekeeping saying, oh, it's too much for you. Just trust us. Don't, don't ask any questions. Don't think about it. It's just way above your pay scale. Just trust us. Screw you. This isn't nine tenths of all of this is not very difficult to understand if you're trying to understand it, if you're not trying to complicate it. it. But they're always trying to complicate it. They always want this to be separated. Otherwise, how do they justify being in the positions they're in for four decades? They can't. They it's, can't. The same, it's the same with finance. So I work in finance as my day job. And um Everyone I speak to, like, oh, finance is really complicated. I don't know where to start, what to do. I'm like, it's not that complicated. If you actually break it down and just look at it, it's quite simple. But it's made to look like it's really complicated when it's really not. It's, when you break it down, it's quite simple. You don't get paid $500 an hour to tell someone <laughs> that supply and demand is supply and demand, that you need more widgets than you do electronic beeps you're going to live you know if you don't got food you die food is a commodity hello we've just answered one of the big questions of finance food is a commodity because you don't have it you die therefore it has a value how much value i don't know how much are you dying oh okay now understood supply and demand and commodities trading in, a, in about 30 seconds it's that simple folks from there everything else escalates how many people are dying of starvation? Okay, once we understand that, we know how much food is worth, pork bellies, uh, soy, we can work it out from there. And how many people you think are gonna die next week? I know whether or not it's gonna go up or down. This is how simple at, at the base level, that is commodities trading. You've just made a 2,000 two pound short YouTube short there. <laughs> we could package that up and sell it for 2,000 pounds. You know, you, you really could, be, but it's just that simple. It's just that easy. And, and by the way, one day, one day uh, I will show you, it's something really fun that I do every so often. I can take any position, left or right, 
on virtually any issue that's been around for the last 30 years. And I can give three minute answers on everything. Let's do that next week. No, next month, next, yeah. next episode. It's really fun because people don't realize this is how empty most politicians are that you can spin a three minute answer. If you pay attention to the issues, you can do three minutes on any subject on any side and say absolutely nothing, but it will sound brilliant. Right. I'm going to come up with a topic and then we're going to, we're going to roll that. We're going to roll with that. Yeah. Next Don't time. tell me that. And people may not believe it, but I never know what we're going to talk about before we actually go. I, I'm just here and they just hit me with it. So don't tell me you, I know you won't, but don't tell me. And yeah, I'll do three. I can answer any question about anything in politics in three minutes and say absolutely nothing, but it will sound brilliant. Well, even on, from our side, I think the first ever interview we did with you, me and Aaron did some prep for it. Um, and then the second one we, we got on the call and was like, we don't need to do any prep for, uh, for Mike. We can just jump on and we will follow. <laughs> I have a I have a few friends of mine uh, that I do shows with sometimes or interviews, and they and they just know like one of my friends is Larry Sharp, who I hope one day we'll be able to have him on to do an interview with you guys, and, and Larry knows it's like uh, Mike doesn't need prep just just Mike show up we're we're talking about stuff don't worry you'll figure it out it's like which is you know it's an asset it's nice it's like okay Mike Mike knows enough he'll he'll cover anything let's go <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good asset to have but what you do on your channel no sound bites it's you sit there five hours and just talk just you on your own and i was you can talk about it that's probably one of the hardest things you can do i i there's my the hardest one for me is my birthday because i started a trend now for my birthday where i go 12 hours at least 12 hours non-stop other than people calling in it's me talking about politics and life and everything for 12 hours in a row that's hard <laughs> i i can't make it past 12 hours yet next year i want to try and get to 14 hours i want, I want to turn it into a marathon and just see how far i can go before i'm just like okay i'm done uh, i have run i've never run out of things to talk about yet uh, yeah, the way things are going, there's just an increased amount of things that you can talk about. So I guess by this, well, this time next year, you'll be able to do 14 hours. Election, so it's going to be, I love. Oh, election. yeah, you'll do 14 hours in a breath. Oh, I've got at least half a dozen candidates to talk about. That's just on the Republican side. There's going to be at least half a dozen Democrats. Oh, I'm going to, I'm, this is what I, I love this stuff, folks. I, I love covering elections because it's just when you when you really listen to the politicians it's so outlandishly outrageous it's like a fantasy novel with these people yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well we'll probably have a good episode next year then when the elections month, yeah. oh yeah oh yeah well we're gonna have some fun with that no doubt because the uk elections will be um january 2025 latest the same which means 20, that means it'll heat up for you guys summer of 2024. Yeah. So it'll be roughly a bit of a crossover with us as well. Should be good. You guys will be reacting to what we've already gotten into. Matter of fact, you'll be reacting to who we've decided are actually the candidates, which will be really interesting to see that. 
imagine uh, a lot of this can be a bit of a carbon copy for America. Um, nah, not really, because you're, you're going to lose Rishi. So who's going to, who is the Labour Party going to put in instead? I think Keir Starmer, right? Maybe. Not necessarily. I know um, Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage are looking to join together and um, set up a party, reform party. They're done. Nope. They're trying for old glory. They're done. They've already had their time. I would like to see him come back. I like, I like Farage. Yeah, I, I like him, but they're done. Uh, they've already had their time in the sun. Comebacks in politics are really rare. Just doesn't usually work. So I don't think they'll they'll do it. But you know, nothing wrong with being a kingmaker. And that they could do. A kingmaker. Yep. Put their weight behind someone. Okay, yeah, as advisors. Yeah, they're the ones who are going to put the connections together, get the money together, make sure that they get the right prep, the right training for doing interviews, um, push the right issues at the right time. They can help make that happen. Kingmakers behind saying, okay, yeah, this is our guy. Give him, give him a shot. Give him the time. Maybe you want to jump onto his bandwagon. People that the candidate wouldn't necessarily be able to ever touch mm. without I can That's see them starting into that sort of role. Farage. I can definitely see Farage doing that sort of role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Johnson, too. Mm -hmm. Johnson's connections as well, Lobby. Yeah. And you'll see them both attached to someone that early, probably in the middle of it, when everyone's somewhat sorted out and everyone put out their general positions and the public's just started, well, the political junkies are just starting to really sort down who they think is good after the first, usually the first three speeches. Then people start sorting someone because you've heard enough of what they're thinking and how they're thinking. And that's when they'll start adding their influence in on who they think would be the best matchups and who has the best potential to make the win. And that's when you're going to start seeing that kingmaker capability come out. It's it happens a lot. There's a lot of people who have been doing that for a while. This happens in every world. The biggest person in politics isn't the face person. It's the person who's behind them that made them the the, the kingmaker. They're often one of the most powerful entities around. As an example, everyone likes to look at BlackRock, and they're the evil bad guys of ESG. No, they're not. The WEC is. The World Economic Forum is. BlackRock answers to the WEC and the WEF. BlackRock is just a famous public name. But what they're doing is they're pushing what the WEC and the WEF have already decided on. WEC, WEF don't get nearly the publicity that the BlackRock does. So BlackRock takes all the grief for them. And they just get to be on the back. And there, and who made BlackRock? WEC and WEF. Where'd they get the loans from? WEC, WEF. They made them. Who's more powerful? 
WC and WEF. So politics is kind of like that. Well, yeah, WEF are the ones that are tying all the knots together from the top. Yeah, they have a lot of that king-making capability, which ties into politics, which ties into a lot of economics and a lot of factors. But we see a lot of that. When it comes to politics, though, then you add in that personal magnetism, charisma, communication. There's that final element that a ambiguous corporation run by a bunch of people on a board that no one will ever see that ugliarchy will never be able to do. That's what you have the individuals for. And that's where politicians separate themselves after they've had the kingmaker step in. The kingmaker can only say, here's the door, and you're walking through it. But once they walk through it, now it's on them. They've got to they've got to close the sale. So it's a different way of looking at it. There's also been speculation that um it's hard to say, but like WBF, for example, won't actually be there'll be sort of if you look at the way BlackRock take the hit, WBF like a secondary wall behind it. So if it does have a spillover and then you start blaming the WEF for their moves, there's actually someone else who's behind WEF who's even less known. The board. The board of the board of directors of WEF. Hmm. Nobody knows who they are. No, they're never spoken about. It's always Klaus Schwab, right? That's it. Klaus Schwab and uh, Soros. Those are the only people you ever hear about who are behind things, or sometimes the Koch brothers to a lesser degree on the other side. But who are the board members? What do they own? How many things are they controlling? Now we start going into that whole interaction, which goes back to our last conversation about the Rothschilds. It's that kind. Now you're going into that realm of politics, which is about two steps away from what we deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, 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 yeah. So with, I don't know if you know much about Freemasonry. How does one enter Freemasonry and get to the top? Uh, You have to be invited into the Freemasons. Mm-hmm. Well, I've not opened it up now so the general public can enter at a low level. No, just people know the name. But most people don't know where the Freemason temples are. Occasionally they do. But they don't know what the Freemasons do. And they don't know who the members are. Freemasons don't run around going, I'm a Freemason. You have to either, you have to know the Masons and you have to know about the Masons to even find out that. I've known several members of the Freemasons. I got invited twice to join the Freemasons. Um, So I have very limited knowledge, but I do know a couple of aspects about them. And they're, they're not the only type of organ. There's lots of organizations like that on different levels. They're just a very old big history big traditions well-funded so great but it's like the skulls you had a you were doing a interview on your channel about the skulls out of yale that's another one of these societies there's a bunch of them out there 
they're constantly being made. They constantly come and go. The thing is, these are the ones that have been around long-term. Why? They built up their infrastructure and they had a plan for the future. And the average person isn't going to get in without being someone who has the ability to see the future. You could look at the WEF as they sort of have a similar model, right? Because they have the, is it the Young Leaders Program, I think it's called. Yeah. So they obviously put people, I think pretty much anyone of a certain IQ or, or whatnot can be um, in the Young Leaders Program, but then they'll select a few decent candidates that then can go and, well, as Klaus Schwab says, uh, infiltrate the governments. So if you look at people like Rishi Sunak, who is a member of the World Economic Young Leaders Program. I think Putin was as well. There's a lot of people. Uh, obviously, and that's not a bad thing or a good thing. If you want to have success, you have to have youth. There always has to be another generation. You have to groom them to an extent. You have to test their capabilities. Some will be better than others. And the more of those individuals that you are able to influence, the more that you are able to continue to the future. It's self-preservation. makes complete sense. The question is, how... Mm, what's the word I'm looking for? How obligated are individuals like Putin, like Rishi Sunak, to these agencies? How much of that indoctrination is part of their everyday life and all the policies that they're going for? That's my bigger concern. Not that they're part of these organizations or that they've been influenced them at some point in their life. You can, you know, there's lots of people who have survived having alcoholic parents or abusive parents, and they're great people. So just because that's your history doesn't mean that's your future. That's the part I'm concerned about. Not so much where was your history, how is that history affecting your future? That's a good way of looking at it. It's easy to get swamped down with, well, he was that, so that label that you put on them automatically. It's easy to, for a lot of people to do that. I grew up a poor kid in the Bronx. And since then, I've owned businesses, traveled the world, speak languages. I'm involved in politics. I have members of Congress. I have their personal phone numbers. I've interviewed people around the world. That None of that was supposed to happen to a poor kid in the Bronx. So never let your history define your future. It's an influence. It's a memory. But it's not something that obligates you to a path unless you allow it to. And, you know, there's a PSA for everybody, public service announcement. Don't let your past define you. Let it influence you. Big difference. Big difference between the two. Yeah, that's very true. Wise yeah. words. I think uh, we can finish on those words. Yeah, it's a good positive way to end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll try and do that for every single episode. Have some positivity at the end after talking about the chaos of the world. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be good if we can work that out. Yeah, we'll find a way. We'll find a way. Uh, all right, guys, thanks for listening. All of uh, Mike's details will obviously be in the description below. Check his channel out. And we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Peace, guys. See you later. Bye. All right, everyone.